today's budget work session. This is Christian Dorsey, Chair of the County Board presiding, and all board members are in attendance this afternoon. Welcome to the first work session for our FY24 budget cycle. Uh, throughout the course of the next couple of months, we will have an opportunity to engage with uh, various agencies and departments within the county government, and then today, our conversation will focus on the courts and constitutional offices. Uh, at each presentation, we will get an understanding of what have been some of the accomplishments in the current fiscal year and then hear about the budget request as well as the expected uh, outcomes and, and opportunities and challenges in fiscal year 24. Uh, after each presentation that we have today, and I believe we have 10 in total, board members will have an opportunity to ask questions and all information about today's work session as well as the FY24 proposed budget are available on the budget and finance page of the county's website at arlingtonva.us. So Mr. Schwartz, my notes say that you are going to orchestrate this whole thing as our maestro, so I'll turn it over to you. I, I think somebody's lying to you. <laughs> the only thing I know is that we're going to start with, I think, one of my favorite people in the world, Judge Louise DiMatteo, is going to come here. And since she gets to go first, she gets all the money. You know what? Whichever chair, you get, you get your choice. And, so, your choice and the esteemed judge, Judy Weed. I apologize, I didn't introduce her. <laughs> sit next to my favorite. Your second favorite person. Yes. <laughs> no, no, Mark and I have a long history. <laughs> Actually, I think we all do. I've known you ladies for a long time. <laughs> yeah, but you're not getting any details. All right, so. Occasionally. On if it's this way. Gotcha. There we go. Okay. Red light means you're on and your presentation is loaded. So Judge DiMatteo, take us I away. I really don't know if I'm going to say too much because we come back to you with the same requests every single time. So we have a very small staff who work with us in chambers and um, in the drug court, as you're aware. Uh, we have two employees. Um, most of our budget is going to be coming from personnel, as you can tell. Um, other than that, we have some uh, training. We have some supplies, things like this. It's very minimal as you can see. Um, for drug court, we have very specific requests regarding screening people and, um, you know, the, of course, the staff. So we include all of that in there as well on the drug court side. Must it be louder? Okay, there we go. And um, so really, it's a fairly minimal um, uh, budget, I suppose, from our point of view. But from your point of view, every, every penny counts, and I appreciate that as a taxpayer, for sure. Um, but these are, these are the same kind of things we ask for every time we see you. Um, I'm happy to answer any questions in case you saw something that deviated from what you were anticipating. Um, but uh, it's, it's kind of think where we were last time, actually, last couple of years. Yeah. So I'm happy to answer any questions. If there are um, efficiency questions that you might have about uh, performance, obviously the courts function every single day. We take the cases that are given to us. We don't uh, reject any cases. Um, in the drug court world, we are hoping to expand it. Every year we do add a few more people um, by way of um, just, I guess, a, a further explanation of how we work with other, age, other in, uh, jurisdictions. We are currently sharing some 
um, participants. We have folks who've come from, we, I think we have a person, one person from Fairfax currently. We've sent folks to Fairfax and Alexandria as well. The purpose of that is uh, to ensure that folks have the opportunity to have the participation in the program if they don't live in Arlington, or if they live in Arlington but have a case or something pending elsewhere, which means that they couldn't do the drug court in Fairfax or Alexandria. So we've taken on a very uh, responsive approach to trying to resolve the jurisdictional question when it comes to drug court participation, and I think it's been pretty creative, and I think it's been pretty functional, and we've been able to open it up to other people. So I think all of the jurisdictions now locally, Prince William, Loudoun, Fairfax, Alexandria, and Arlington have a drug court. So uh, we should be able to move people around if there's an issue on that. But anyway, those are my points, but I'm happy to answer anything particular you might have. Terrific. So we've already got lights up, so why don't we start with Vice Chair Garvey and then Mr. DeFerranti. Yeah, just a quick question. First, thank you. I mean, I think drug court is one of the most exciting things we're doing. I, I mean, it's just watching this grow. And actually, that's my question, because I read, I see all these percentages. I'm looking. It's probably here somewhere. I couldn't find it. How many people are we talking about? It's hard. Currently participating, we have 19. Okay. Uh, we have three awaiting admission, but their cases have to be sort of teed up, if you will, for them to move over. Uh, they have one participant, one person I know had some cases outstanding in Fairfax that needed to be resolved before they could be admitted. Great. And then, seems I have the mic one more. Please. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm fascinated that we're now cooperating with Fairfax and mm -hmm. Alexandria, and I mean that's great because I know in the the whole jurisdiction. How did we solve that? Is that a new thing? Is it first? Is it new this no. year or last year? Um, it's been a few years ago. When well, first of all, no one other than Arlington had a drug court in the immediate vicinity. When Alexandria came on, I was in communication with Judge Kemmler. She's the chief judge there, and we talked about trying to move people to and fro. And we had to kind of work out venue changes and kind of. It, some statistical, I mean, statutory things about that. Um, when Judge Ascarati started the drug court in Fairfax, we brought her in and we had a meeting and we all agreed on a manner in which we could transfer cases. And that's how it went. Yeah. It was pretty good. Thank you. I think it's just fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. DeFranti. Thank you. And thank you, Judge. Um, I um, appreciate the, I wonder if you could help a little bit. There's explanations regarding jail days. Mm -hmm. and an effort to decrease the number of jail days used, yep. uh, which we hope will be realized this next year. We went sort of down to 38 and up and get up up a little bit as, you know, we moved out of the pandemic, I think, mm -hmm. perhaps. Um, can you give a little sense of the thinking as to, and the what makes us confident that we'll be coming down in terms of jail days, um, just in light of lots of conversations over the last five years and and if, if you're talking about jail days associated with participants in drug court or the alleviation of jail days because they're in drug court which are you referring to well there's a mention that sanction sanctions have been oh, used mm -hmm. to decrease in sanctions mm -hmm. and so that's the context i don't know that i've answered your question right well um we rarely impose jail days um on with participants and that's reserved for the most significant infractions so it depends on the cohort and um, and depends on the infraction so if we have someone who's absconding if we have someone who's not attending treatment if we have someone who's been deceptive we do consider a jail day and it's brief brief uh -huh. maybe even half a jail day mm -hmm. um, to address the conduct and then we have more participants in the program and depending on what phase they're in 
could impact the number of jail days overall that you might see in a report. Mm -hmm. um, but we rarely impose jail days. Um, the whole point of it is to address it with um, direct conduct that will uh, meet the participant where he or she is and also to try to come up with something creative other than a jail day. So we're, we're efforting in that department, definitely. But I think it has, you might be seeing it because we've actually improved the numbers of people in the program. So that could be part of it. Great. Mm -hmm. And I'll, I have one final question, um, and that's about fines and fees. It sounds like we've kind of tightened our partnership a little bit to help other, you, there's a reference to other organizations that can help pay some of those fines and fees. Um, I'm mindful both that we want there to be a consequence and also if someone has gainful employment mm -hmm. we want to launch them to a successful future and so I didn't know if there's a pretty significant increase in fines and fees but a reference to other organizations and wanted this sort of comment on that or see if fees have come down but we we have a better partnership we, perhaps. Um, let me let me see how I can address that um, the individuals have to pay their court costs as it's as pertains to their underlying criminal matters. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're responsible for that. Most of the people in our drug court program are employed, so they do pay it off, which is super. Um, secondly, we have a fee. It's only, I think it's 300 and change. They're on a, on a scale uh, for the actual services of the drug court. It's minimal. It clearly doesn't pay for all of their services and treatment. But it's, uh, it's a best practice to charge a participant for the, um, the treatment a small amount so they have buy-in and they do pay that off and we ask them to pay a little bit every every time they advance in a phase so that's been wonderful um, we don't really have too many other people um, paying out for the drug court participants except maybe to do some community service associated with their their core costs great thank you judge mm -hmm. thank you all right mr carantonis and then Ms. crystal thank you mr chair thank you judge for welcome thank it's you it's great to see you in 3d in life here so. <laughs> uh, uh, first of all, on, on the jail days, uh, I, I was looking at the measures there. I, I was uh, happy to see uh, an annotation on the budget on, on, on page two, 212 that where you explicitly, or where the kind of magic explicitly uh, states that the number of jail days used as sanction decreases as the county will continue utilizing these alternative sanctions. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I believe this, and correct me if I'm wrong, this, this is about... Uh, restorative justice, right? I wouldn't say it's specifically about that, but I would say this has been a goal to address individuals who are using substances um, to not jail them or use other kinds of punishments because it's not terribly effective overall as a way to address their substance use disorder. So that's been sort of the mindset is that we want to meet people where they are and address their behavior in a specific way that will move them forward away from drug use and away from criminal activity. Okay, understood. So, but so restorative justice is part of that, but not the whole. This is a, a vast okay. array of actions. Uh, and so one thing that I don't understand very well is mm. in the supporting measures, there is a, a measure that says days between arrest and or probation violation and admission. Mm -hmm. And uh, the um, 2022 calendar year, it was 34 days. And the estimate for next year is 14 days. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, this is significantly faster, right? So That's the goal. Why? It's best to try to get someone into the drug court program as quickly as you can from the time that they're um, involved with the court, um, the purpose of which is to get, their, get them into treatment more quickly. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I have less control over that than um, 
the process itself would, uh, and the process itself does. It, it relies upon the defense attorney and the Commonwealth attorney to process these requests and to move the case forward. And so we endeavor to have everyone put in as quickly as possible, but that doesn't always happen. So the goal is to move it more quickly. Yes. Yeah, by, by halving it. But in, in the previous year, we were at 21, and then we jumped to 34, yep. and now we want to go back to 14. Well, because we don't want it to be at 34. <laughs> I, we're trying I understand to that. Yeah. Just, I'm yeah. trying to elucidate what, what happened, and we, I, we experienced I, I that. I think a lot of it was outside of the court's control okay. and drug court's control, because there's so many other people involved. You know, the participant, the lawyers, they do definitely have an impact. Excellent. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Ms. Crystal. Thank you. The recidivism performance measures were so impressive. And I wondered, is that for the duration of participation in the program, or is that measured for some time after graduation? Um, it's some time after graduation also, okay. but within the program as well, yes. Excellent. Yeah. Because we're, I mean, you've been at this for enough years that you probably have some longer term looks as well, right? It's very hard for us to keep that information because if a person moves to Tennessee and recidivates there, we wouldn't know about it. I see. Yeah, if they leave the jurisdiction and they don't have any more involvement, it's really hard for us to tell. Now, if someone were to come back to Arlington, then yes, we would know that. But it's hard to tell otherwise. I see. Um, well, thank you. I think as I, as all my colleagues have been, we're most interested in the drug court because of, of the model. But it is, of course, a, a mere sliver of what you and your yeah. colleagues do. And so yeah. we appreciate um, your work and the the, uh, the efficacy and the emphasis on um, moving these cases forward. Uh, it's it's, it's my involved. pleasure to do it. I enjoy that very much. Thank you. And so uh, just budget question for me, uh, as it relates to the 3% uh, reduction. How is that exactly going to play out within the operations of the court? Hmm. <laughs> I don't think we had a lot of um, room to address it, but what I do think we have done is, number one, I have underfilled a coordinator position for drug court. So we had um, some, I might have mentioned this at the work session with uh, the department, but, and with the manager, but um, one of the coordinator for the behavioral health docket Kelly Neiman agreed to help us with drug court. And then she agreed to be the coordinator for drug court. But it's a lot of work, and so for one person to do it, it wasn't going to function. So instead of having two different coordinators, I en ended up hiring someone who's sort of the deputy for Kelly. And um, she's paid less than the coordinator position, so we've underfilled it. But what that's served to do is the two of them are now teaming both courts, and we're, we're gaining some efficiencies um, from, a tr from a services point of view in the Department of Human Services, as well as coordinating and getting a lot of bang for our buck among between the courts. So that's a little bit of savings there. Um, I was trying to think if we had another small change that we made that might have accommodated um, some, I guess, lower spending rather than a cut, if you will. Um, we didn't have too, too much. I think the only question was how much travel and training we were going to be able to do this year. Um, I know that some has been scheduled because we've had to put it off for several years. Uh, I know that I'm not going to be going to a training out of state for drug court uh, because I did go last year in Maryland and it was close enough, and I figured I would just pass on it for this coming year. Um, but uh, there doesn't seem to be a lot of room in our budget, unfortunately. So um, that's been tricky for us. Yeah. So that, that's the best answer I can give you is we've done what we can to, you know, change some things about how we're functioning, but um, I don't know if that fully comes up to the 3% you were looking for, but I know that it was, it's a little less than what we could have spent 
if, it, if we hadn't considered so, that. So. Right. Yeah. It's, it seems like salary savings yeah, that have salary been. Salary savings is what it is. Have, but is but that, have yeah. produced the same number of FTEs and you've figured yes. out a way to efficiently deliver work. So let I'm me just say. you could to, say it to that. Me, so. yeah, no problem. <laughs> That's very creative and, and, and appreciative okay. in, in a tough budget time. It's really great when you can, you know, come up with ways of not actually diminishing the, the output or the, the work product mm -hmm. and also, in this case, mm -hmm. have salary savings without losing personnel. So that let me just uh, thank you for that. And I, I know it's not hard. And here's hoping that at some point we make it a little easier on you. Yeah, thank you. We appreciate your understanding. That ended up being a really huge plus. It did. It really did. Yeah, I know. It did. Anything I think final else? question to get you out on this. I, I realize that we're still in this bridge period to what our new normal is, whatever that is. But how is the how is the return to normal docketing? How how is it feeling? Is it feeling like the before times? Better? Probably closer to the before times. Okay. We've we've had to we've been talking about bringing a lot more cases in for status. That's been our biggest. Uh, problem of late is a lot of cases went sort of by the boards when we, we weren't having cases heard regularly just to keep up with what's been filed. So we're bringing in a lot of cases to see where cases are still open and they shouldn't be open, if you know what I mean. Some bunch of civil cases, really. Got it. So we're cleaning. There's a little bit of cleanup going on. I don't know if this works, but just, just to add to that, you know, one of the things that we learned in COVID is that there were actually some things that we did that were not normal that work. Mm. Um, so while some of the remote hearings don't work uh, in cases, uh, we did find that particularly in a lot of civil cases, when you're dealing with motions, that remote hearings actually are more efficient. Um, and so places where we found efficiencies from what we learned through COVID, we're trying to implement in terms of uh, how we practice um, to make it easier uh, for people to be able to access the courts and particularly for people um, on status hearings, on case settings and those types of things in civil cases who are not in the area for them to be able to appear remotely makes it much more uh, economical for them to be able to manage their affairs in circuit court. And so uh, those are some of the things we're trying to maintain, having learned and gotten that technology and all the support from the county uh, during COVID to be able to do that. Good, good. Thank you. Thank you. I think that's it. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. We know that you balance coming over here with your regular uh, hearing and work schedule, so we do appreciate the time. Thank you. In other words, you don't want to. <laughs> oh, it's, it's okay. You know what? When I get bored, I'll turn it over to you. How about that? All right. So next, we're going to be joined by our Commissioner of Revenue, who will be joining us virtually uh, to provide us with insights into uh, that office. So hopefully we have Commissioner Maroy on Teams to present her office. Yes. Welcome. Yes, I, I'm here. <laughs> Thank you. Um, good afternoon, County Board Chair uh, Dorsey, Board Members, and County Manager Mark Schwartz. This will be my last budget work session before I retire at the end of the year. So I, I just wanted to take this opportunity to thank, to thank the board, the county manager, department directors, specifically the HR director, DTS directors, 
DMF directors, AED, and their staffs for their continued support and for working with my office throughout these 20 years. Um, I have two deputies in the audience in the county boardroom, Otilio Sabillon from the BT, the Business Tax Division, and Secreta Smith from VPP, um, Vehicle Personal Property Tax Compliance, while my chief deputy and Beachside is remote, along with deputies Bill Burgess, Jessica Silva, and um, Jackie Johnson. DMF staff will help us to drive the presentation. So if we can start, I would appreciate it. And uh, special thanks to Sasha and Emily and Richard in DMF who have uh, helped us throughout the years and also with the uh, budget matters. Um, I want to start with the business tax division, the next slide, and uh, tell you some of the uh, key achievements. We implemented a new paperless initiative for annual mailings to customers who have active business tax accounts. We installed um, counter kiosks for customers convenient, convenient enough because they're outside on the counters to, um, to be able to register new businesses and to file online if they don't have um, online, um, uh, online systems at home. And, and we have live um, staff members, of course, to help customers. We have effectively used the online appointment scheduling, and that started during COVID. Um, as far as I'm concerned, we're still in COVID because we do have a couple of cases, positive cases, uh, maybe two or so per year among staff. So it's a good thing that we're still um, taking care of our customers and our employees not to infect each other. Uh, we enhanced um, cap options to allow customers to fully manage their business tax accounts online. That way they don't have to come to the office. If they don't have a cap account, um, staff will help them to set some, um, to, to set, uh, set up cap accounts um, by phone or by email, whichever way the customer wants to communicate with us. In the vehicle personal property tax division, the next slide, we improved uh, customer response time uh, when it comes to CAP because we cross-trained um, the, the staff. So every employee can help customers answer uh, CAP questions and, and helping to set up their accounts. We uh, updated the vehicle assessment process. Of course, that was a big uh, process to reflect the use of that one-time 88% assessment ratio. We also modified uh, uh, fleet customer correspondence and we do everything electronically now instead of by paper reports. So this, this way we can easily adjust accounts, establish a new uh, process with JD Power, formerly NADA, National Automobile Dealers Association, to increase efficiencies. And we added appointment opportunities uh, for DMP Select. We are still using that. And that helps with the longer transactions. Uh, but this does not mean that we don't help walk-in customers. Walk-in customers are still getting service. But for those transactions that take a longer time, uh, we have an appointment system that is working out uh, pretty well. In the compliance division, we increased the um, number of field visits. And we began surveying neighbor neighboring streets along apartment parking lots and garages. We also started working with civic associations, so residential streets within civic associations 
are also included with the help of uh, citizens. And we resumed issuance of administrative summonses. Um, budget highlights for FY24, a paperless initiative is reducing postage, mailing, and associated costs for customer correspondence. So that is the big the big cut that we are uh, able to make because, because of our paperless initiative. Uh, the next slide is a summary of our proposed um, changes. As you can see, um, reduced spending for postage and printing again from newly implemented uh, initiatives. And then the, uh, the details of the proposed reductions um, you will see on the next slide. It will have a minimal impact because some process um, efficiencies have already reduced costs for the use of supplier services, such as Federal Express, LexisNexis, et cetera. And um, that, that change, we will be able to reduce um, expenses by 14,300. On the next slide are some more um, reductions in, in expenses. Uh, although customers will no longer receive assessment notifications, including tax returns, of course, we will help any customer who needs needs our help, who is not on cap and who uh, needs help accessing their uh, their account on on online. So they get help from us uh, by phone, by email, or we visit them or they can come to the office and we can help them there. Key budget considerations, training and travel budget, the cost of continued employee training and the cost of um, travel for a new commissioner. Um, for the past couple of years, especially during COVID, we during COVID we had uh, virtual annual meetings. That is no longer the case. And a training will not always be virtual either. So um, I, I uh, foresee that there will be a little bit uh, of travel costs uh, related to the new commissioner and um, which is not in the budget. We have some some travel budget, travel and training budget, so that will hopefully be enough. But if not, then there might be a little bit of an increase, but hopefully not by much. And that concludes my presentation. Well, thank you very much, Commissioner. And uh... Thank you for successfully getting through, I guess, your uh, last budget presentation. We, we certainly uh, are looking with regret to your concluding your fifth term. Um, thank you very much for your service, but there will be plenty of time for valedictory remarks as we continue throughout the course of the year. <laughs> Today is all about budget business, so why don't you start us off, Ms. Crystal? Sure. So um, was pleased to see the paperless initiative, particularly for, for mailing the personal property payers who have cap accounts um, to, to minimize the duplication of notification. Uh, can you talk a little more about the mechanics um, of what happens uh, who folks may not have an updated email account, for example, or um, may not receive those? Is there, are there multiple warnings? Does the mail go out if, you know, the date for deadline approaches and they haven't been paid? Um, I imagine we're not just going to cut everyone off from contact, of course, um, as we make that transition. But, but what will that look like? What will the different notices look like as we reach out to those customers? Correct. We will send out uh, uh, postcards to let uh, folks know that they can go online and that will happen this year it happened last year also 
they can they should go online to create a cap account and if they uh, need um, assistance from us to call us or to email us and we will help them to set up that cap account but we will uh, communicate with customers uh, with post with postcards and that's true for but the, those who already have a cap account will not receive such a postcard right Correct. Okay. Correct. And so what happens if someone's account is, um, uh, you know, linked to a mailing address, an emailing address that's incorrect, right? Knowing we experience this all the time in our public communications that email can sometimes just be less reliable than mail. So is there a sort of a follow-up notification that goes out by mail if the deadline's approaching and you haven't heard from those, we haven't heard from those cat payers? Yeah, hopefully they, hopefully they will, they will know that they're, um, that their uh, taxes are going to be due and that they will uh, receive a, uh, a bill in the mail. They, they will receive a bill in the mail. So even if they have not um, received notification from us that they should go online to check out their assessment for, for a vehicle or for, uh, for with the business community, it's a little bit different because they, uh, there's always some contact information. But you're right, um, because email addresses can change. Um, so if they receive a bill and the bill is not correct, of course we will make um, we will make uh, we will be flexible with customers who didn't know. Okay. Um, uh, if if their car is picked up by us, even if they didn't register it with us, if it's picked up by us through the DMV or through our um, enforcement program, uh, they will receive a bill. And if it's not correct, of course, they will call us because the, the bills are still going to be mailed out by the treasurer. So uh, some customers may be surprised to get a bill. They didn't know that they had to register their car, but we picked them up through the DMV and other, uh, and other avenues. And then we will, of course, work with them and adjust their accounts if, it's, if the information is incorrect. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Karen Tonis. Thank you. Uh, uh, Ms. Moroy, thank you so much for your service. It's uh, kind of a, a, a significant moment uh, today to, to deliver your, your last uh, uh, report to the budget. I have two questions. One is the, uh, uh, under permanent FTEs, uh, there is one frozen and unfunded position. Uh, right. so I understand that the funded ones are 52, yet uh, the count is of, at 53. So can you just elaborate what this position is? That position was the, the customer advocate position. Oh. And we were able to, um, because, of, because of the outreach that we're doing in each division, we were able to, um, to share the responsibility of that position. Um, the position was held by an employee who retired. And um, and the county decided to freeze it. So hopefully I'll get it back eventually. But if we don't get it back, um, the the assignments of the uh, customer advocate is shared by other staff. So each division, every every um, employee in my office has become a customer advocate, uh, so to say. But it, it was good to have uh, to have the function centralized in admin, because that person would then look at the complaints that came in, if and if any suggestions were made by the customer about the processes in our office. Now it's um, shared by the different um, divisions. So, um, of course, I would love to have that uh, position back, but um, the functionality of the office, the operations of the office has changed over the past 20 years. So, um, so that's why we 
we can, for now, live without in that position. Yes. Uh, thank you. Uh, I see that. Uh, thank you for that. I see that in fiscal year 2019, these were 1,500 customers served by the advocate, and now you project uh, roughly a third of that. So for the next year, it's 500, right. 500 customers. Right. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I agree. Of course. Ms. Garvey. Yeah, no question. Just saying it's nice to see you, Ms. Maroy, and I look forward to seeing you in person at some point before you leave Lee. Yes, you will. Yeah. Yes, oh, definitely, you will. And a uh, question for me, Commissioner. So we made some, been able to fund some of your desired uh, investments in the compliance division over the, the last couple of years under the rationale that this would uh, help better enable you to identify leakages and potential revenue for the general fund. Can you just give us a, not a, a numbers, but a narrative of how those investments are, are succeeding? Um, yes, actually, because we installed those, the camera system and that has great, greatly made us more uh, effective and efficient in um, discovering vehicles that are, that are unregistered, that were un unregistered. Um, we have six folks in the compliance division who do this work and they all go out with the, with the, the car, with the camera system. And um, we've been able to increase the number of, um, of uh, enforcement trips and be able to increase the number of vehicles uh, discovered through this program. So this was uh, definitely one of the big successes of the office because there was no enforcement program when I first started in 2004. And now it's, uh, it's a program that's being copied by other jurisdictions. And if they haven't copied it yet, they visited us and wanted to go on a ride along with us to see how it all worked, how, they, how the, the technology has improved and how the communication between systems has improved, the security of the, the data has improved, um, so yeah, it's a, it's one of it's it's a pride of our office. Thank you. And uh, similarly, we've uh, learned about some of the very innovative but but quite manual ways in which you go about trying to uh, figure out who's complying with the requirements under our accessory homestays uh, permitting process. Can you update us on how that stands as well? Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a going. That's a little bit better, and uh, staff is working on making the communication between our office and CPHD a little bit uh, better. And um, uh, there is a good communication, but it's uh, there's a lot of uh, paper and reports going back and forth. So uh, we're we're working on making that a better process. Okay, thank you for sharing that. And I see no other. Oh, sorry, Mr. DeFranti. I don't want to forget you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Ms. Maroy, for your work and your service uh, over five terms. Uh, very much appreciated. Um, I'm actually, we have nine or eight more. I'm actually going to try and follow up with you on the challenges in the per personal, the vehicles. Uh, with respect to, we do get some communication from low-income individuals, and I will follow up separately offline if that is okay with you. Thanks. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Commissioner, we appreciate the time and we'll look forward to seeing you soon. We'll now do a uh, shift in presentation change and invite our treasurer, Carla De La Pava, to join us.
Here we all are in person. We need your microphone. You got it. It's on. Okay. Members of the board, it has been quite a long time since we've sat at this table. Was it three, four years? Last year, no, we weren't at this table, though. We weren't? We were all spread out. Oh, distancing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. All right. So this feels a little bit like back to, back to the future, I guess. I've <laughs> lost a few times in that future. <laughs> um, Mr. Schwartz, nice to see you. Um, as mandated by the Commonwealth of Virginia, the Treasurer's mission is to receive, collect, safeguard, and disperse county funds. This next slide is a visual uh, representation of that mission. Um, as you know, my oops, I think that's you. <laughs> um, you have to turn off all your devices. Okay. Um, as you know, my staff is oftentimes the face of the county. It's who the average everyday person can get in touch with, and they work very hard to provide uh, stellar customer service. In 2022, we mailed over 427,000 bills and notices. We processed 27,000 payments in our, at our registers alone, and 600,000 payments over all of our payment channels. We responded to 12,000 emails, answered more than 54,000 phone calls, and collected more than $40 million in delinquencies. For Crunch this year, we were able to open two satellite uh, locations. We were open in Lubber Run, of course, and we were able to open in Arlington Mill. Um, the primary benefit of a satellite office is to allow residents to pay closer to their home. But it also means fewer crowds in any one location. And I think the last three years has, um, has informed us of how important that actually is. Um, it does, however, take a village to open these satellite offices, and I want to uh, mention my appreciation for, those for the support we received from the county, um, DTS, DES, DPR, all those Ds, um, and not, not at last but not least, the sheriff's office. Um, we really could not do this alone. Um, this year, we also introduced uh, a consolidated bill for vehicle taxes. Um, for the first time last August, we billed customers for multiple vehicles um, on a single invoice, which saved paper, printing, and postage. And this savings leaves us in a strong position to offset what seems to be the continual continual increases in paper printing and postage that we've seen over the years. Um, we had lots of fantastic customer feedback, many, many compliments, and actually a few great suggestions as well. So our uh, consolidated bill is still a work in process. Um, the budget you uh, passed last year um, required a number of changes to our tax bill. 
Um, we had, for the first time in history, two uh, values for each vehicle. We, of course, had the value assigned by the Commissioner of Revenue, um, but we also had the taxable value that was assigned by the county. We also had the elimination of the motor vehicle license fee. Um, and I, as I know you are aware, uh, our customers were very surprised and unprepared for the increased financial burden um, caused by the, the skyrocketing ta uh, car values. Um, but your decisive action um, to remove or eliminate the motor vehicle license fee and to tax just 88% of the vehicle value lessened the financial burden on Arlingtonians and was enormously helpful to so many that we spoke to last in the last tax season. So thank you. Thank you for their efforts. Um, at this time, Kim Rucker, Chief Deputy Treasurer, are, is going to share a few highlights of the enterprise payment solution. Yes, so as, am I on here? Come on. Thank you. Um, when we spoke with you last year, at last year's work session about this initiative, we were just starting the procurement process. So we've done a lot of work over the last year, and we're really excited um, to let you know that we'll be going live next week um, with our first payment types. Um, as you know, this is a portal uh, or payment solution that will roll out across the county to any and all departments um, that would like to take payments through this um, system. Um, it will accept uh, payment with by e-check, credit and debit cards, but it will also um, allow our customers to pay using digital wallets like Venmo, PayPal, and uh, Google Pay. Um, so our phase, this will, and it'll be a multi-phase rollout. It will take us a while to get everybody on board. But our goal for phase one um, was to focus on the departments and the programs that had no online payment capability. Um, and you can see on the schedule on the slide that we're going live first with FOIA. And you might be aware that there's new legislation this year that will require localities to accept payments online for FOIA requests. So we should be up and running um, in time for that to go into effect July 1. And then we'll be rolling out um, payments for HR, including retiree and COBRA healthcare premiums and some health smart, health smart program fees. And then we'll roll into uh, taking payments for police false alarm fines. And we will also um, implement an IVR or phone payment system um, for taxes, utilities, and parking tickets. Um, and work is well underway for phase two, which will include um, several DES programs, including re uh, residential permit parking, um, commercial and multifamily recycling fees, and other um, fees accepted by the Solid Waste Division. And we will roll out partial integration with CAP. And it's important um, to understand that this will not replace CAP. Um, as you know, CAP is used for many other things like filing business taxes, registering cars. Um, so our customers will continue to use CAP for those purposes, but we will be transitioning payments over to this online payment solution that we think um, will bring some enhanced payment capabilities for our customers. Thank Back you, to Kim. You. <clears throat> uh, management and staff resources in my department are stretched um, very thin by the size and scope of our current projects. Uh, we have two outstanding RFPs, one for banking services and one for printing services. Um, as Kim explained, we have the enterprise payment solution, which is uh, requiring a lot of time, a lot of effort. Um, stormwater utility billing will be 
a, a, a big one. And, um, and we also need to get to paperless billing. Um, that has, that's been on my list of things to do for quite some time now. Um, but these projects all rely on experienced staff and the turnover we have experienced in the last three years will exacerbate the difficulty of each one of these projects. Um, if we move to our budget summary, our budget reflects a modest increase in personnel expenditures for FY24 um, due to employee salary and benefit adjustments. Um, we will continue to seek process improvements and increased efficiencies. Um, it's very important to us to be good fiscal stewards of county resources. Um, although it's not listed here, when the manager asked us for budget cuts, we did offer to downgrade a vacant position. Um, and it's not, it's not highlighted, but it is uh, reflected in our total budget. The challenges we face this year in, include turnover and recruiting issues. Um, we've, I don't think we've ever really fully recovered from the hiring freeze that we had during the pandemic. Um, and then I have to bring this up even though I really don't want to. Um, tax delinquencies are 30% higher than they were a year ago uh, at this time. And in fact, they have never been higher in my tenure. Um, the largest increases are, of course, in vehicle taxes, and they reflect the higher values of vehicles last year. But the economy is also starting to take a toll on development and real estate taxes. So it is going to take a Herculean effort um, to even get in the same range of, of delinquencies that we had last August. Um, I also wanted to talk to you about uh, and I know this isn't the time for CIP talk, um, but I, I've been told by DTS that funding for our tax system upgrade um, has been taken out of the CIP for FY24. Um, I just wanted to remind you that all of the recent and un upcoming county initiatives that impact the tax bill, vehicle value changes, motor vehicle license fee, stormwater utility, um, enterprise payment solutions, consolidated billing, paperless billing, would not have been possible without the system upgrade that we completed in 2020. At that point in time, we were four versions behind, and the only client still left on that antiquated version. And we vowed that we would never get that far behind again um, because it impeded so many initiatives that we had. Um, there is no way we could be taking on any of this right now if we hadn't had that upgrade. So when the CIP uh, comes in front of you, I would really appreciate it if you would keep this in mind. Um, we cannot uh, delay the attacks upgrade by for example, four months. Uh, we have to do it at a certain time of year because all of these processes happen at different times and there's small windows of opportunity when we can start this. So for example, our last upgrade started in March. We couldn't have waited until July or August 
to start that upgrade because that would have gotten us right into crunch and right into, you know, collections and and then we get into business license and then you know it just it 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 all flows um, in the calendar and so when you delay it a year or delay it out of one year you delay it for an entire year um, but on a positive note I appreciate the support that you all give me and the and uh, the the, our esteemed county manager, um, who has always been very supportive of my office. Um, I would like to take a minute to thank each and every member of my staff for their tireless efforts. And also, in closing, I want to kind of go a little bit off script here. Um, I would like Carolyn Meadows to come up. Carolyn... Yes, we're going to embarrass her. <laughs> Carolyn Meadows is my deputy for compliance. And Carolyn will be retiring next week after 35 years of dedicated and invaluable service. Um, as you can imagine, this is an enormous loss for my office and for the county and an enormous embarrassment to uh, <laughs> Carolyn. So please join me in wishing her the best of luck in her new adventures. Awesome. Yeah. It's a great way to end your presentation, and Thank we appreciate it, and congratulations, Carolyn. You must have started when you were 15. I was going to um, say, I, I think we violated some child labor laws when you hired her, I think. I know. I didn't hire her. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, Vice Chair Garvey, would you like to start yeah, us off with Actually, right kind of where we left a little bit with personnel. So I was, I'm aware of hiring issues, you know, kind of across the board, particularly in certain very stressful or, um, fields, like our mental health field. Um, could, what are you, what are the reasons that people, you're having trouble? I mean, is there, is it the work hours? Is it just the general situation? I would say is if I had to. people are leaving, I mean, if, moving away? Well, we have a lot of retirements. Mm. Um, which I think happened in droves during the pandemic. We also have the greener pastures issue. Um, we have, can you think of anything else off the top of your head? Greener pastures that really are green. I mean, I'm trying to figure out, you know, we need to be attracting and retaining people here in Arlington. And sometimes people talk about childcare. Some people talk about housing. Sometimes people, I'm just trying to figure out if there's a pattern or a theme that this fits into, but perhaps not. It may just be individuals, lots of no, individual decisions. I think there's a, you know, there have been a lot of, we, we do a lot of trading of, of employees uh, within different divisions. Mm. Um, so that's a, that's, I mean, you can't, you can't stop that, and nor would you want to. People need to uh, be challenged and have new things. Um, but uh, off the, I think a lot of it has been, um, and during the pandemic, a lot of it was, was uh, I think working from home is is actually can, can be hard. Mm -hmm. um, and we've had people apply to our office specifically because we are in the office. So mm, interesting. All right, thank you. I look forward to CIP discussions when we get there. Obviously, we will have them. Um, and also, following because I know the delinquency rate has been such a point of pride with you and 30% in one year, that's pretty amazing. So it's, I'm sure we'll be yeah. talking, I, you know, maybe 
offline at some point, again, looking for sort of patterns with that and what all is going on. We have one real estate um, tax delinquency that is about a half a million dollars for every installment, and they're delinquent. Mm -hmm. um, and so there'll be more of that to come, possibly. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Ms. Crystal. Thank you. Um, so I just wanted to thank you for your partnership last year in communicating the personal property tax changes. It was obviously a really tumultuous time. One of the things we heard from folks quite often was the sense that the, the board had made the decision to, to gouge them or take advantage of the wild fluctuations and increases in pro personal property, which is to say car resale values. Um, and we sought, when I was chair last year, to explain that we had not treated that as a windfall, but rather um, uh, all of that had been, so to speak, spent in the form of personal property tax relief. It's just that we had done it in a progressive way by eliminating the decal fee. Uh, that was a little bit of a, a, an exercise in communications, figuring out how to, how to do that. Um, and your team's thoughtfulness and empathy as the front line of receiving many of those complaints, um, working directly with county communication or county board communication staff, was really exemplary, and we appreciate it. So thank you. I also wanted to ask, this is probably a question for our manager and uh, DMF as much as it is for you, but since, again, we work hand in glove on the administration of the personal property tax, um, the manager's recommendation is to, to return to a 100% assessment. Um, so if there are any insights that, that you all can shed as we do that, it sounds like there, you know, that market has dramatically stabilized, but what we are seeing in the market, if we anticipate there'll be some um, uh, types of vehicles that will be hit harder than others? Will people be generally seeing their assessments go back to, you know, pre-2022 uh, valuations, or is it more we've sort of stabilized from 2022 valuations? Any insights you can tell us about kind of where that's been headed? Um, you know, Kim Rucker has worked really closely with um, the budget office and with the commissioner staff, and I think you might be able to answer that. Yeah, so I, I think, and Richard, jump He's in. He's on standby. Jump <laughs> in. Jump but I think what we've seen in looking at the car values that the commissioner has received, um, that most vehicles are returning to lower than 2021. So Great. back to a little bit of depreciation. Okay. Probably not as much as would have happened if we didn't experience last year. But most of them, um, by and large, are going back to below their 2021 value. Great. Okay. Well, it is my most fervent wish that the uh, partnership between this year's chair and the treasurer will be on matters more uh, constructive and less. <laughs> oh, we've already got a project less that difficult. we've been working on. So <laughs> been communicating about Wish that. fulfilled. Yeah, there we go. All right. <laughs> thank you. All right, Mr. DeFerranti. Um, thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you um, both for um, I'm gathering that Arlington Mill will continue, and that's just really appreciate that, I hope. Uh, a big thank you for your work on the enterprise system. I uh, don't envy you, but I admire uh, the work, th and I'm grateful for it. Thanks. Uh, on the other two, in the interest of time, uh, I'd be curious about staff turnover as far as sort of the percentages, just because I'm trying to continue to learn. And then on the CIP cost, I will also follow up offline. I'm just mindful we have seven more presentations. Thanks. Mm -hmm. thank, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Karen Tonis. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Also very briefly, uh, indeed, thank you so much for the effort last year. I mean, we all learned something uh, about how to monitor this asset and how to, to assess that. I, uh, I'm very curious to see how the market has recovered and what's the vector there. One, uh, I have a question on, uh, on the uh, investment interest income. So there is one part uh, that, uh, I mean, you know, 
higher, higher interest rates uh, mean that the money that we have in the bank uh, renders more, yields more. So, uh, and, and I've seen here that, you know, it's not enormously more, like 400,000 more, uh, but uh, what's, the, what's the outlook for that and how do you manage to, um, to get the most <clears throat> out of that? I think the, the outlook for interest income is really quite strong. Um, part of why it's a slower rollout is that we've had things invested in longer-term assets, so those have to roll off before they can get reinvested um, in higher-returned uh, investments. And so that that part will will take a little a little time. Um, we have been in the last couple of years before the pandemic, we had been trying to shorten up our portfolio exactly for this this moment, um, so that we would have available cash to um, to invest. And I will tell you the the pandemic year, making sure that you know doing the analysis on what kind of cash flows that the county would need. I mean, if I bring you back three years, we were all very uncertain. Um, and so we had a lot of, we, we luckily had been very short on a lot of our investments. And it turned out that, that um, you know, there was a lot of federal help that, that it, it wasn't the worst we had imagined. But, yeah. Right. This was... I mean, I thought that because we opted to be more liquid, you know, yeah. more short term, that we would benefit from an increase of interest rates right now. Oh, yes, we, we will. And I assume that you're looking at last year's interest income, right? It, rates didn't, I don't think they really started to, to go up until July. You'll see a lot more interest income this year, I'm sure. Right. Uh, thank you again for everything. I, I take your... Uh, I'm. I cannot overstate how excited I am about the enterprise uh, portal. Finally, we, we get uh, some, somewhere that looks like e-governance, and that's right. Um, I, I hear you on, uh, on the tax, uh, uh, the update of the tax management system. Uh, but mind you that CIP around is next year, so uh, we want to really be ready. If there is a timing problem, we need to know that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. All right. Um, so, one quick question for me: Will the uh, will the enterprise solution replicate the uh, cap structure of what is it, two and a half percent for credit cards, no charge for e-checks? It is actually going to be two point three five percent for card payments and digital wallets, um, and no no charge to the customer for e-checks. All right. Thank you. All right. Seeing no other questions, thank you all very much. We appreciate your time this afternoon. And we'll tee up next our registrar, Gretchen Reinemeyer, who will be joining us virtually. She'll also be joined by Scott McGeary, who is here in person to do the presentation on the Electoral Board. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm 
So um, we can go to the next slide, please, Joe. Um, so I am here today to represent the Office of the Electoral Board and Voter Registration. I apologize for not being able to be there in person, and I want to thank Joe, Emily, and David for making the last-minute arrangements for me to appear virtually. Um, today we do have our Secretary of the Electoral Board there. Um, Scott, I don't know if you want to say a few words at the beginning or end, but just let me know. Um, so our directive as the Office of the Electoral Board and Voter Registration is to maintain an accurate list of registered voters and administer safe, secure, and transparent elections in an equitable manner. Next slide, please. The 2023 fiscal year has brought some new challenges. Last fall, we implemented same-day registration for the first time, and more than 2,000 voters were able to both register and cast their ballots on the same day. We also began reporting results by precinct for both mail and early votes. This did require the purchase of a ballot on demand system in early voting, meaning that ballots are printed when a voter checks in during early voting. We also contracted with the vendor to print and mail ballots for us. And we believe that both of these programs will see a greater efficiencies and cost reductions moving forward. We also moved into an expanded suite as a part of the renovation here at Bosman Government Center. I also wanted to thank County Manager Schwartz for recognizing a structural change for how poll workers are paid with his excellence awards this year. This change will allow us to pay election officers on a more efficient and predictable schedule. As I'm sure Mr. Dorsey might remember, we've been working on this project for the better part of 10 years, and I wanted to recognize both the HR department and my team, Tate, Camera, and Sonia, for their work on this important project. Next slide, please. I've spoken for several years about changes in voting trends in response to expanding voting options beyond Election Day. Over the past several years, early voting has increased at a rate of more than 1,000 percent and vote by mail at a rate of more than 3,000 percent. We are starting to see signs that rates are leveling off. When I say leveling off, this year we noticed around a 50% increase in the request or voters choosing to cast votes before Election Day, um, either early or by mail. Um, another trend that we're starting to monitor is we're starting to see an increase in ballots that are tabulated after Election Day. In 2000, only a handful of ballots were tabulated after the election. In 2022, 4% um, of the ballots were tabulated after the election as a result of same-day registration and a shift in due dates for mail ballots and the availability of drop boxes on election day. While this might seem insignificant, it does delay certification of the election by a couple of days. Next slide, please. We are preparing to be the first office in the Commonwealth to run an election using ranked choice voting this year. The Department of Elections is proving to be a great partner in developing a suite of voter education and training materials for us. This will allow us to focus on local programs to get these materials in front of our voters. Also, next fiscal year, we will have an extra election in there. There is a tentative date of a presidential primary in March of 2024. Next slide, please. We do have a 7% increase in expenses this year as a result of personnel increases, implementation of ranked choice voting, and the presidential primary. These costs are partially offset by the anticipated reimbursement uh, for costs associated with that presidential primary and the implementation of parts of ranked choice voting. Next slide, please. 
Looking forward, we are squarely focused on one date, November 5th, 2024. Today, we are 616 days away from the presidential election. That's just over 20 months away, during which we must conduct four elections with our modest staff of 9.8 FTEs, our eight permanent employees. The months highlighted in blue on this calendar represent months when we'll be running an active election. Once May hits, we will pretty much be in constant election mode, and years like this take an enormous toll on staff in my office. We look forward, as ever, to partnering with our supportive county manager and other departments to make sure we can continue to deliver safe, secure, and accessible elections as efficiently as possible here in Arlington. That is all I have today. Scott, did you want to say a few words? Yes, thanks. Thank you very much. Appreciate your excellent presentation. Just a couple of thoughts from this past year and looking forward. And I would add to um, my appreciation, Mr. Manager, to your support, both for the staff and also for your brand new conference room, which we enjoyed meeting in several times for our sessions before the much anticipated uh, renovated space for our office was completed. So we appreciate that. And also with respect to the number of same-day voter registrations. As I recall, we had twice as many as did Loudoun County, which has twice, I believe twice, both the population and the number of voters. And we had the pleasure of keeping each other company to make certain we could complete the vote counting. We're used to, in recent years, having to come back and finish our canvas, usually on Friday or Saturday this year because of the additional, again, glad to see many new people registering to vote indeed. We also were here down the hall on Sunday. This year brings us a record number of primary contests for the, the as we call it, the Constitutional County Board year. And we have the greatest number of candidates in the general election on the ballot and next year, we have the greatest number of voters, as certainly very important, each, each year being important with at least one of you on the ballot. And as Mr. Dorsey recalls, as the only member of the county board who's ever been an election official, and I recall visiting you at Abingdon School, making things work. <laughs> so we appreciate your great support for the, from the past uh, at the present, looking towards the future. And last but not least, when I was in Richmond, as usual, for the General Assembly session, I was in the House Privileges and Elections Committee where legislation to add ranked choice voting as a, as a method for federal elections and constitutional offices was defeated. Delegate Bloxham of, of uh, the Eastern Shore mentioned that he thought it was prudent for the General Assembly to wait until they could see how we did here in Arlington. So the eyes of the Commonwealth will be upon us. We've appointed outstanding qualified election officials and I'm privileged to, to continue working with Gretchen and our two members of the board and our great staff looking forward to bringing you the type of primary, special and general elections as you would expect us to do and the citizens and voters of this community deserve. Thank you. 
Thank you. Thank you, Mr. McGeary. Thank you, Ms. Reinemeyer. I'll just, uh, I'll say, first of all, thank you for the shout out. I, uh, I'm very nostalgic for those days as an election official and can just say firsthand that I continue to be amazed at Arlington's ability to uh, not only handle the volume and complexity of our uh, annual election cycle, but the credible interest in participation among our constituency and to bring with them the uh, initiatives to make it both easy and efficient and to do so with remarkably little error, all with a staff that seems way too small for all that you accomplish. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, Ms. Garvey. Yeah, thank you. I may throw a few more bouquets. Um, it, I mean, really, when you look at how it's complex all the, and we always have an election going on, you know, from, from our standpoint, it seems kind of crazy, but from your standpoint, it's even it's even more so. Um, and I found myself when you the first slide came up, you know, what maintain an accurate list of registered voters, administer elections fairly and efficiently, open, transparent, equitable manner. I mean, when I first got on this board, you know, it was the same thing. It was kind of yeah, well, you know, it's, it's a kind of yawn, right? I mean, this is what we do all the time in Arlington, not a big deal. And I know we've been affected by all the things going on nationally, and I just want to thank again our registrar and everyone working in elections because I know that behind the scenes there's been some real tough stuff going on and, and you're handling it with grace and um, not letting it interfere with the work at all. So thank you so very much. And I, I don't know if you, there's anything more, Ms. Reinemeyer, you want to say or, or Mr. McGeary about ranked choice voting. I, was, I kind of, I mean, that it's kind of a big thing we're doing. Do you, is, what, if you would like to, if you don't decline to answer the question, that's fine. What worries you the most? What, what, what's kind of the toughest thing about taking on this ranked choice voting for the first time? Um, so that's a really good question. I think where we are right now, it's all of the unknown. Um, so we can plan for the things we know, but we can't plan for the things that we don't know. And while ranked choice voting has been implemented across the country, it uh, because every state's election laws do differ slightly, um, it, it's we it really is kind of launching this program within the context of Virginia's election laws. And there are a lot of um, things that we want to make sure that we're doing um, with fine tooth cone to make sure that we are in full compliance with Virginia's election laws. Um, so it's, yeah, so I don't know. I, I would say we're ready, um, but there's a lot of work ahead for us in the next three months, so. You're as ready as you can be. Thank you very yep. much. Yeah, thank you. I can add one thought. I think uh, I, agree, I agree with um, Mr. Renmeyer and also um, I'm pleased to see that there are as many county board candidates as there are. Uh, there are two I wish, wish were still gonna be on the ballot. Uh, but thank you for your great service. So I'm delighted that we have more than three. And so last count I had was five, maybe maybe six uh, will, will come about. Um, so we know that we can indeed implement it. Mm -hmm. And with the support that we're asking from you today, we'll be able to promote it. Uh, there are a number of organizations in the community that are willing to partner with us so we can give, give the greatest promotion of it. It certainly would also be helpful for the political party having that primary and the candidates to do what they can. And we can work together to make sure good things happen. And one more thing, if I may thank Mr. Carantonis for taking time to come down the hall to our meeting. Uh, that's the first time we, we've had, uh, in, in my memory, a member of the board having occasion to be with us. We always enjoy visiting with you here and appreciated your taking time out of your schedule to be with us. And uh, thank you for your inter additional interest shown that day on the matters being discussed. Thank you. All right.
Uh, Ms. Crystal and then Mr. DeFranti. So on that same line of discussion, um, with ranked choice voting, a resource question, since we are talking about the budget, when we um, uh, passed the resolution, we talked about the $75,000 in additional um, resources required to do that outreach. I, I think that's being spent. You were talking about the kind of the contract for um, outreach materials, but I am so put in mind when I see how few staff you all are working with. I know there are plans to do, you know, train the trainer model, a fair amount of additional um, outreach to the community, but recognizing that's a small staff, do you foresee, you know, a need for, I suppose this would be in fiscal 23, but I happen to know a manager who has a contingent. Um, uh, are there, you know, additional resources <laughs> for, uh, for needed for that community education and outreach to make sure our voters are all prepared to, um, you know, really take advantage of this opportunity by, by having this opportunity to rank their candidates, preferred candidates. Thank you, Ms. Crystal. Yes, the ask are certainly on their way to county manager, staff, and other departments to help in these efforts. Um, we are very fortunate in Arlington County um, to be able to leverage some of those community partners that you spoke about um, to uh, kind of carry the torch into their communities for us so that we don't have to go to every civic association meeting. Um, we have people that are willing to do that. We just want to prepare, prepare them with the resources they need to accurately describe our voting method here in Arlington. So those materials are really about preparing them to do trainings rather than just flying, yeah. explaining what this is. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay. I think that's really helpful, and I know they, um, that will be welcome. And we have not only local partners, but, um, in fact, uh, state partners. I just heard from one of the advocates of ranked choice voting that they're hoping to do a, a training themselves um, in Arlington. And so I think there will be a lot of folks leveraging those materials in which we are investing. And um, as you both noted, hopefully other communities around the Commonwealth uh, who will seek to, to learn from our experience, too. Um, you know, I'll note, finally, uh, we'd had some discussion back in November about uh, the acquisition of voting machines that would allow ranking of more than three choices. And I know there's been some discussion in the community, especially given how many um, candidates have emerged from the county board, that we, we all rue that we're unable to um, uh, have that. I, I would argue in any event, being able to rank three is being much better than being able to rank none. So it's certainly still worth doing. But um, I, I know, you know, it's sort of an opportunity to surface between supply chain issues and, you know, general challenges of procurement. Um, that was not feasible for this election, but we look forward to I look forward to uh, a very successful implementation of this, um, from which I think we can we can learn, and hopefully others in the Commonwealth will as well. So thank you for your leadership on it, Ms. Randemeyer, and this support of the electoral board as well. Thank you, Mr. DeFranti. Mr. DeFranti, followed by Mr. Karen Thomas. Thank you, Mr. Chair. This is uh, uh, perhaps I could use a refresher. Perhaps it's not quite set. Is there a first? Do, have we set the time for the beginning of that ca education campaign just yet? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we are anticipating getting materials from the Department of Elections on April 1st. So April really will be our launch. Uh, and this does time with, we will have ballots at the beginning um, to mid part of April. So once we get our ballots in hand, then we can really go into the community um, and start um, educating our voters about what's going to be on the ballot for this upcoming primary. Thank you, Ms. Reinminer. And uh, thank you both for your leadership and work. Yes. My ad, I think that given the 45-day early voting, that helps us in terms of being able to start the voting process, see what questions arise and what can help us as we get closer to the June 20th primary date. It'll be, be a trial run. <laughs> Thank you. And Mr. Karen Thomas. Thank you, Mr. Chair. And uh, I 
I echo all the thanks and the gratitude of this board, uh, both to uh, our register and to the electoral board for their work. Uh, I haven't been able to be uh, a elections official because I usually linger in front of the election, <laughs> the location, for, for other reasons, uh, for more partisan reasons, I should say. But I live with one. My, my wife is an election official, and, uh, and I have a first-hand, uh, first uh, a second-hand, but very close uh, account of how, how this goes every year, and it's uh, always an, ex an exceptional account. So thank you so much for organizing that. Coming, coming back to the issue of... Um, of uh, the challenges of this year uh, with a change in our uh, voting system for one election in the primaries. So you are, um, the, you're, I, I understand that we are working all together to get uh, as much uh, public education out so that we can serve still uh, three, two, two out of three voters will be voting in person on election day. Uh, as if I if I read the numbers correctly, so do we think that 400 election officers is an appropriate number for an election that has two challenges? First, a new system, and secondly, a different system for one office and different system for other officers. So we may want to have somebody on site to 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 explain that to some voters. I mean, I've been explaining many things to voters when I greet them uh, before they enter the location. So I can imagine that there will be a need for that as well. Thank you, Mr. Caratonis. That is an excellent point. I would say in a primary, our staffing is actually reduced. So we only put send out around 250 election officers. So um, we are looking to add extra, basically a ranked choice voting officer to help with that education piece at all 54 of our polling locations, so. Great, thank you. That's great information. Mr. Caratonis, for Chairman, just mentioned that um, I appreciate Gretchen's answer, and also we have begun begun doing something that I think will additionally help us every year going forward, and that is we we have by law appointed the bulk of our election officials at our at our most recent meeting. We are also asking the political parties to please continue sending names of persons interested in working. And it could be for this year, for next year, for future years, all the above, so that every month we have the potential, pardon me, every month we have the potential of approving new people to join our ranks, and we'll closely monitor that number. Next year, again, is our largest turnout year. I expect we'll be back in the range of, as I recall, Gretchen, it was 800 workers. So we constantly monitor that and we'll make sure that every precinct is fully staffed. And also the, the election chiefs, again, as Mr. Chair can remember, unless he was one, the election chiefs have the flexibility to have those who are working on election day move around and handle various responsibilities as need be. They may do the same thing every throughout the day, or they may be moved around depending on where we need the greatest amount of help to make sure that we have the quickest quickest in and out that we possibly can. And again, I think having, once again, having that early voting will help us be sure we're geared up for the primary day and for November. Thank you so much, and I appreciate your wife's service, and I look forward to visiting her on primary day. Thank you both. Really appreciate you. This was uh, terrific. And 
You're now excused and relieved, or however you want to describe it. And we'll move next to our Commonwealth's attorney. And so I'd like, like to invite, <clears throat> always a more august title, the uh, Commonwealth's attorney for Arlington and the city of Falls Church, yeah, right. Parissa Dakani Tafty, welcome. Thank you so much. We need you to put on your microphone there. Oh. Thank you. Hello, members of the county board. Thank you for all of your work. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Mr. Manager. And thank you, um, Alicia, for advancing the slides. And I lost you, but thank you. Um, if you would, please start the um, slide presentation. Uh, we can go to the second slide. Well, this is our mission statement um, and a nice photo of uh, some of our staff. Uh, they say hello. We can go to the next slide. <laughs> oh, and I'm sorry, I'm here with Laura uh, Saul Edwards, our office administrator. So the guiding principles that uh, we rely on, which are sort of our uh, three North Stars, um, are to prosecute crime, work for justice, and fight for reform. And in terms of prosecuting crime, we focus on serious cases, uh, things that jeopardize the safety, welfare. Oh, should I wait for Ms. Crystal to come back? No, you're okay. fine. Please continue. She uh, can hear you even though yeah, you can't can see her. Back. Okay, uh, of uh, the community. So we hold people accountable for car thefts, carjacking, serious assaults, rape, homicide. But we also divert cases to allow for rehabilitation um, and for substance abuse and mental health treatment. In terms of working for justice, we are um, very cognizant that we work both uh, on behalf of the victim and on behalf of the accused. Um, and we also uh, work on behalf of the community. So we empower victims through innovative restorative justice practices and a prosecution model that focuses on victim needs. Uh, we work, work to defend the constitutional rights of defendants and we work to build community trust. In terms of reform, we, our philosophy on that is that not every social ill needs to be criminalized, not every crime needs to end in punishment, not every punishment lead to incarceration, and not every incarceration uh, should be so long and punitive that it leaves no room for redemption and rehabilitation. Uh, which is, if you would advance to the next slide, please. All of this is about equity. Uh, and reform itself is, um, has equity at its core. So every day with the culture of the office, um, every case, every policy, uh, we are focused on equity. And uh, reimagining the legal system is about doing the work in a way that doesn't repeat the mistakes of the past. We've had periods where we've gone through um, you know, reforms, and we've had progressive eras, um, and the most significant one was the turn of the 20th century, where we really realized that socioeconomic factors were the drivers of crime, and we realized that for white European immigrants um, who were in terrible socioeconomic circumstances, but we didn't recognize that for black people or people of color or um, people with ID and DD or mental health issues or, or any of that. So we're trying to operate in a way that does not repeat those mistakes. 
And from the beginning, we have partnered, we partnered with an, uh, independent researchers who determined that there were, in fact, significant racial disparities um, in the way that people were charged in Arlington. And if you were black, you were charged at a 50% higher rate of seriousness than if you were white. And uh, that also led to disparities in conviction rates, disparities in incarceration rates, and disparities in length of probation. So we set about to start uh, enacting policies that were evidence-based and would help to address some of those. Uh, we've had continuing partnerships with VERA um, and, and in Motion for Justice. We have partnerships with OAR. We have partnerships with Restorative Arlington. And we are willing to partner with anybody else who is uh, doing the same work. We've also partnered in terms of education because some of this is not just about policies. Uh, policies are wonderful, but if you don't change culture, uh, you're not you're going to be repeating the same mistakes in the past. So we've partnered with experts like Professor Sherry Soans and Professor Kristen Henning. Professor Henning is twice trained our staff on the trauma response of youth in our criminal legal system, particularly black youth. And in all of the examples that I'm about to, to discuss, um, we are trying to address disparities and biases to create equity. So next slide, please. So one of our uh, most exciting uh, things that we've done is we've hired through a, a Bureau of Justice Assistance grant, the Reverend, Reverend Grace Woodward as the Director of Restorative Justice and Diversion Services. And her job, because close to 70% of our court-involved population is not from Arlington, and we can't provide Arlington services for most of those people, any, almost no Arlington services for, for those folks. Um, we have, she's are charged with setting about um, developing relation, identifying and developing relationships with diversion services in other communities, and uh, you know finding the ones that work, and allowing us to refer people to those services in, in other communities as well. And she'd be in, inside the office. She would be vetting the cases that go to diversion because her background is in social work. Um, she would be vetting the cases that are most likely to have the, the success rates and most likely to, to result in rehabilitation to services, um, diversion services, but also to restorative justice as appropriate. So she's also working very closely with our victim witness staff for those for that purpose. Um, we do have a uh, challenging uh, hiring environment uh, with surrounding jurisdictions getting in many new positions and a nationwide prosecutor hiring and retention crisis. Um, I have raised the uh, issue with the county board um, about a year ago when, uh, and, and there have been news articles and job fairs, including a Reuters article entitled District Attorneys Struggle to Recruit and Retain Lawyers. Um, uh, the National District Attorneys Association just had a job fair, um, its first ever in its history of over 50 years of existence in January, and we attended the job fair, and there were more employers than there were job seekers at the job fair. Uh, we are still working with um, uh, body-worn cameras, and Falls Church Police Department has brought those online. And um, just as a reminder, we work with, you know, very, very closely with five um, law enforcement agencies. We think about ACPD as being, you know, the, the, the law enforcement agency, but we actually work with a number of different um, agencies. Airports, um, the Washington, uh, the greater, the, you know, 
MWA is what we call it in the office, um, is now also getting body-worn cameras, um, and we anticipate that uh, Metro Transit uh, will as well. So uh, almost all of our law enforcement officers are uh, getting body-worn um, in the near future. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, we have in the code, the Commonwealth's attorneys, uh, over 250 pages of code that refer to our duties. And some would be surprised that our duties include things like code enforcement and uh, electoral fraud, which I am uh, always delighted to see Gretchen because we work very closely together. We also work on rights restoration and um, expungements. And I'm very pleased that in December, we, with the help of the clerk of court, um, uh, and several community-based organizations, uh, Pro Bono Defense Council, the Coalition of Black Cler Clergy, excuse me, we hosted our first ever expungement clinic that was free to people who are seeking expungements. Um, and uh, we hosted it at, Arl it was at Arlington Presbyterian Church and 39 people were served, 19 expungement petitions filed and 12 have already been granted. Uh, People were so excited that they lined up several hours um, before the expungement first started uh, just to have a place in line to be the first uh, to get in. And expungement is important because a rec having a criminal record, um, even an arrest, will adversely impact employment opportunities, the ability to get loans for cars or homes, and the ability to attend some trade schools, universities. Um, and to get some licenses. And so we hope to make this a biannual, um, and uh, uh, meaning every six months, um, and I hope the clerk of court is up for that. <laughs> um, so uh, we also um, have implement, you know, completely implemented um, and are being nationally recognized for a preemptory strike policy designed to address both explicit and implicit bias in the selection of jurors so that uh, juries can be a real cross-section of the community so that we protect due process and so that we enable community members to discharge their civic responsibilities, which in turn creates buy-in and establishes trust between government and the community. Throughout the nation, uh, we have seen the pandemic increase, uh, since the pandemic, an increase in gun violence. Uh, year after year, we are breaking records in this country of how many guns are sold in the United States. And year after year, the time frame between the purchase of a legal gun and the use of that, illegal, that legally purchased gun in an illegal way um, has been decreasing. And in other words, we are drowning in guns, and we are starving for common sense gun laws. Now, I don't make laws, uh, and um, I can't change the situation of um, gun sales, but uh, we have initiated working with Moms Demand Action to try to design a gun buyback program that is innovative, evidence-based, and would provide opportunities not only to track um, what interventions are effective to reduce gun violence, but gun buybacks programs also provide an opportunity to educate the community about gun, safe gun storage, to provide gun locks and gun safes, and to educate the community about um, emergency substantial risk orders. Uh, this is also in addition to 
the, the almost full drug court that we've uh, maintained and the uh, full behavioral health docket that uh, is hopefully, um, from what I hear from DHS, uh, on the verge of expanding. And so we're very excited about that. Next slide, please. Uh, these are the sort of numbers based on the um, the personnel increases. The one additional staff is Grace Woodward, as I mentioned, um, and that is grant funded by the Bureau of Justice Assistance. Next slide, please. So that slide did not include um, what we are asking for in um, our next uh, budget cycle. and. Uh, one of the things that we need to do if we want to support vulnerable communities and protect them, um, and that's related to some of the duties that, that are not typically thought of as Commonwealth attorney duties, is uh, bring on an investigator to help investigate OSHA violations and um, help code enforcement investigate uh, illegal um, or you know, criminal code violations of code enforcement. And then uh, also wage theft, which is a huge problem. Uh, and we have no means right now to investigate wage theft. Uh, so I would be, so I am asking for an investigator uh, to you know, help us investigate these particular issues where we don't have um, much support uh, in the way of other agencies that are willing to take the lead on it. So we would like to take the lead on those. Um, we also have, because we work with so many different law enforcement agencies, uh, there are times where we need follow-up and we need follow-up um, on our timelines. <laughs> and since we don't supervise the other law enforcement agencies and some are less consistent um, and some are more consistent than others about uh, you know, uh, following our lead on, on what needs to be uh, pursued, uh, we are asking for our independent investigator to help. And given that law enforcement agencies are seeing hiring struggles and challenges, uh, you know, that, that sort of trickles down and it would be a help to them for us to have this as well. It's also a way of supporting victims and supporting um, witnesses who do not want to be served um, by, you know, people, law enforcement who are, you know, sort of in uniform with marked cars. And, um, we, you know, we really need to be sensitive that, that you know, somebody who is cooperating doesn't get served by uh, a, a subpoena or, um, you know, a victim who is concerned about their safety does not get served by a subpoena. And so that we can find our, our victims and witnesses when sometimes it becomes challenging, um, you know, because of, of their personal situations to, to find them. Uh, we have had a conviction review uh, unit. Um, so far, we were able, with that unit, to support the reversal of one conviction that was based on improper legal advice, and we saved somebody from deportation as a result of getting that conviction overturned. Um, we were able, with the clerk of court again, to locate transcripts and physical evidence that were thought to be lost. And we currently have two DNA cases under investigation internally that we anticipate will require some litigation. We've determined, of, you know, when I first came to the, the board with a request 
uh, for the CRU. Um, part of it, it was in part because we had 31 cases that were referred to us by the Department of Forensic Science um, because there had been a, a improper testimony by one of their DNA lab analysts. Uh, we have looked over those cases. We've determined to close out 18 of those cases. Uh, but we've identified 13 of those that require notice to the defendant and DNA testing and potential litigation um, to follow up on that. We have had 14 inmate inquiries um, that are pending, and we've responded to at least four inmate inquiries. And we've responded to several extensive requests for uh, reviews, uh, post-conviction um, reviews of cases. And because post-conviction requires so much engagement, and that it's and it's so familiar and similar to FOIA requests. This role has been had this the, this responsibility. This role, like the FOIA role, sort of lives with this this individual, uh, and we have received regular FOIA requests and are trying to keep up with them. And it's been uh, challenging, uh, given our commitment to transparency and the changes in FOIA laws. Uh, hiring this position has been extremely challenging because while the board was uh, generous enough to give us the, the position um, out of contingency funds. Uh, people don't want to work in this environment in a temporary job that is not guaranteed. And so we've lost very good candidates. And this is a very specialized area of law. Um, so it's hard to find good candidates to begin with. But we've lost good candidates because of the temporary nature of this position. Um, with uh, our case management system, we have had the same exact system that has remained completely unchanged for nine years. Uh, so it's behind the times. And we have had significant problems with being able to collect and analyze data. Um, it has many, many flaws. The system, it was not designed to collect and analyze data. Um, it was designed as a case management system to hold calendars and, and you know, dates and, and documents. Uh, we have tried many, many ways to make it produce data and have not succeeded. Uh, we are proposing an upgrade and um, an interface, uh, some interfaces with the courts. Um, those, those interfaces would enable, A, it would speed up PBK, but it would also, and PBK is prosecuted by Carpel, and it would enable PBK to speak directly with other databases so that we could... Um, export information with efficiency and accuracy. Uh, the estimated cost is really broad right now because they need to study the databases that we'd like to interface with um, still, and we don't have that information back from them yet. But it would be somewhere between a one-time uh, $10,000 to $25,000 for the licenses and a 20% annual maintenance fee. Uh, I will try to... Uh, we've discussed targeted support. There is an appetite to come to our office um, because our office is very attractive uh, around the nation, but the Virginia Bar poses a significant burden and obstacle uh, for people coming here. And um, uh, so we have people who could waive in, uh, who are experienced attorneys, but it would cost $2,500 for them to waive in. Um, or we have people who, you know, have a few, you know, less than five years of experience, but still close, and would have to take the bar, and um, it costs about $3,500 to take the bar and get admitted. Um, I am advocating for uh, the Virginia uh, Bar Association to adopt 
the uh, universal bar exam, but that's going to be years um, in the future and not now. And then finally, I want to say something uh, about staff and uh, the wonderful victim witness, um, the role that victim witness plays. Uh, they support victims on a daily basis. Uh, they are usually the first person uh, in our office to speak to victims. And uh, they are, you know, throughout the pandemic, you know, they were on the ground um, doing the work and the support for victims. But too many of them have to have second jobs in order to pay their expenses and can't even afford to live in Arlington. And that's not fair to them, it's not fair to the community, and it's not fair to the victims. And so my would ask that, I've asked in the past for uh, family job studies. Um, uh, you know, it's the, the victim witness and paralegals have been sort of, um, you know, not, not addressed and aren't going to be addressed for at least another year. Um, in the meantime, you know their their pay is extremely low, and um, they're they're the, you know some of the people who've gotten the the you know experience really the brunt of the um, pandemic and the brunt of other people's pain and secondary trauma. And so I would like to advocate for uh, taking a look at their salaries and you know coming up with something that allows them to live without having to have two jobs. Um, so uh, next slide, please. Um, I think that the work that what we've done um, in the Office of the Commonwealth's Attorney is show that we can do the work of public safety um, and do it with a lens, though, of transformative justice. And I hope the county will approve these requests and support our important work. Thank you, Ms. Dignani Tafti. And we'll begin with uh, questions from the board. I know Ms. Crystal's on a bit of a Schedule, um, right? Yes. So I'm going to give you the first Thank go you. Unfortunately, and I, this is an opportunity to share my regrets with others who are here to speak. We have a, a, a child care issue and have to leave at five. Um, but I look forward to watching the the, uh, the recordings of the remaining sessions. Um, thank you very much, Ms. Dagani Tafti. Um, as as you know, and I can see Mr. Dorsey has our history, um, uh, budget history. There have been really significant increases in the Commonwealth Attorney's Office over the last four years. And so um, I appreciate kind of the, the uh, the sense of activity, right, that's going on in the scope um, that has been happening. So uh, here is a very literal question, which is that even though this is my eighth budget, I learned something new every um, and in this case was that we, uh, Arlington and Falls Church, um, provide prosecution as well as public defense for um, uh, cases originating at MWA property. Mm -hmm. So I wonder to what extent, I'm interested in getting a sense from you, uh, how many cases of those you're seeing in a given year and perhaps in follow-up from the manager, do we have any sort of memorandum of understanding? Is there any... Um, reimbursement for uh, the services that we're providing. Um, and any, so any insight you can share with us now and then I can talk to our team and follow up. So I did actually uh, ask MWA when they, before they, when they started hinting um, about uh, getting body worn cameras, I did figure out the number. I don't have it off the top of my head, well, unfortunately, but we can get it back to you. And I did tell them that I would requ request that they please include um, reimbursement. And I think that we had figured out that it would be um, the equivalent of 
just under two attorneys if you added up the hours, but I don't want to be quoted on that because okay. I don't remember. But this has been something on my mind. And the increases that you've seen are really largely driven by body-worn camera yeah. um, because yes. it's changed the nature. I mean, I still support it. I still think it's important. I think it's helped the police department um, uh, in, in a great many ways. It's helped our office in a great many ways, but there's no doubt that it has changed you know, a review of a file that would have been 30 minutes, you know, for uh, a very simple misdemeanor, it has turned that into a four to five hour body worn camera extravaganza. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and, and we see, you know, very, very significant um, numbers if we're actually, uh, you know, trying to watch it. And the body, and it's also produced a great deal of administrative work. And so part of what we've done, you know, with with our um, uh, with our staffing is frozen to attorney positions, and are you know temporarily bringing in additional paralegals okay. to try to relieve attorneys of some of that, that administrative works. responsibility that that comes with the body worn camera, with changes in discovery, which again are good, um, changes in FOIA, and and so many of the reforms that we've seen have been worthwhile, but have not come at no price. Yeah. Um, well, that's really helpful. And maybe this is an opportunity for us to talk in general about the services being provided. So I, I can follow up with our team on that. Thank you for that insight. It does sound like it's top of mind. Um, speaking of top of mind, just one other thing that I wanted to note, it's it's so interesting that you bring up the gun buyback program. Ms. Garvey and I are actually, um, we're just meeting with uh, the ACPD staff today. Um, I was delighted to learn we have a gun take back program um, in Arlington. And so I think um, for my part, I'm really interested in, and you know, we'll be exploring this with Moms Demand Action. Um, given that the, the, the research isn't quite there to support, right, that, that these gun buyback programs, it's really hard to prove that they're taking off the streets guns that are out of homes, right, especially in domestic violence cases that otherwise would have been used for a crime. Um, I think it could be really interesting to, to try to get a sense of, you know, is it the um, the the $100 gift card that's driving the buyback, or is it the ease of taking it somewhere where you know it's safe, awareness that these programs exist. So I hope very much that that your office can um, engage in those conversations with the ACPD. We were talking, for example, and you can imagine a whole spectrum of services, right, from being able to refer responsible gun owners to the free lockbox they can get from mm -hmm. DHS, right, a safe place to drop off, you know, a, a, a gun that was maybe owned by a parent that passed away, mm -hmm. um, all the way to, you know, where can you get state trainings about how to safely store guns or even how to safely use guns. So I would love to have the partnership of the Commonwealth's Attorney's Office kind of in that mix too. I, I would love that. And um, I am aware of the, the, the data. The problem that has that's occurred in the way that the, the data has been collected is that most of the gun buybacks um, are anonymous and no questions asked. And they're for small amounts, which is really 100 or $250. Our idea was to be more innovative and incorporate some uh, violence intervention programming okay. um, with that and some job skills as well. Uh, and so our thought was to, you know, uh, give away laptops and tablets, but also have people there to, you know, provide free tutoring for GED studies to provide, um, uh, you know, free services for resume development and interview skills uh, so, so that people are, are, you know, being drawn in with the promise not just of one trip to the supermarket, yeah. but, um, you know, like real social services supports. 
uh, that, that would help them. Uh, and that would also allow for longitudinal studies um, to determine whether these particular individuals are then mm -hmm. um, benefiting from, you know, uh, the, from the program. And, you know, we're hoping to target people who, you know, are, are more high risk. We're hoping to target people who are, you know, having, uh, you know, depression and, 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 you know, suicidal thoughts and have guns and, and, and want to make sure that they, uh, they or their family members don't end up using those. And given that, I think um, the, the um, suicide hotlines have seen an explosion of, I want to say, 300 mm -hmm. percent um, of uh, DHS would have these numbers better than I would. But we've seen an explosion of mental health issues. We've seen an explosion of um, uh, suicide attempts. Uh, anecdotally, looking at the you know um, watch commander reports from the police department, I can see that there is just you know, sort of a, an unrelenting pace of, of uh, attempted suicides and, and successful suicides. And to be able to, you know, it's a, to, to attract those people to something else um, by providing services as well as um, the buyback uh, is, I think, you know, it's different than anyone else has done, and it would be innovative um, well, I think that sounds great, and hopefully there's an opportunity to coordinate with DHS. I mean, I would say we're very eager to get people in those services, irrespective of whether they have a gun to sell back to the county. Um, and, and I know DHS is working to, to step those up or to uh, get more people in the extensive services that are already available. And, of course, too, there's a role for Project Peace, in which I know you, you, you help steer. Um, we do know that a gun in a home increases the, the, the fatality risk of a given incident Absolutely. by as much as four times. So Absolutely. Um, lots of fertile ground yes. to sow here. So glad to have the creativity. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. We're going to start this way with Mr. Carantonis. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, Mr. Garantafsi, thank you so much for the presentation. That's uh, an office that has so many lines of business. I mean, uh, we would spend the better part of the day here, Mr. Manager, to, to discuss all of them. I'm interested in a couple of things um, <laughs> related related to uh, your request for an investigator position. And you mentioned something that I care, uh, it's very close to my heart, um, the ability to investigate effectively wage theft. Correct. Um, I, I, I have heard uh, many times from our unions, but also from common people, that uh, it has become increasingly difficult to investigate and to properly prosecute, effectively prosecute these crimes. So uh, how, how do you envision this position work in this, in uh, this sense? And, and how are, have we been able, and, and why haven't we been able to prosecute these crimes until now in an effective way? Uh, well, it's, it's a combination of reasons. Um, but, you know, I have been referred cases by unions and then in turn referred them to law enforcement. Um, and, you know, the current, the current Penalties are mostly misdemeanors um, or civil fines, and uh, there's not an appetite to spend time uh, investigating misdemeanors. Personnel. Problem. Um, <laughs> uh, well, uh, it, so it, it, it hasn't attracted very much interest in the past. Um, we do have a challenging statutory scheme, but we can't fix that until we know that it's not working until we know the ways in which it's not working. And so, uh, you know, I think that we could be making some, some, bringing some charges 
um, uh, you know, under things like theft of services and, and, and that sort of thing. But uh, it, having somebody who would work at the Commonwealth's direction uh, would be very helpful. And they would, you know, obviously work very closely with unions um, to obtain the information to begin with. Um, Thank you. I understand that this is a, it's difficult to prosecute that, but it affects literally thousands of people here in this county. And uh, the, the damages of that are, are incredibly high, as far as I can tell from, from the experience I have with constituents. So uh, thank you for highlighting that. I, I will really think very carefully about supporting this. Um, I mean, the, the damages are twofold, too. They're, you know, with the individual who is um, uh, not being paid, and it's also a, a, a safety issue. Um, there was a very large case of wage theft um, involving uh, the installation of, of uh, electrical wiring. And, you know, if that, is, that sort of thing is not installed properly, if people who, who are installing it are, you know, not, not trained and not paid properly, um, you know, that, that, that poses significant risk to the community as well. And, you know, obviously there's the economic impact, but then there's a the safety impact as well. Well, of course, somebody who defrauds their workers for their, for their salaries, um, we won't expect them to be right. compliant with everybody, for everything else. Thank you so much. Vice Chair Garvey. Yeah, thank you. Um, uh, thank you, um, Mr. Vagani Tafti. Can, I was going to look at, I was looking at the performance measures, and um, there are a number that are pretty striking with um, the, uh, the great diminution in case low, you know, cases. It, it says in the notes that the criminal and traffic case count um, has been restructured for FY23, so I assume that's a lot of the reason that there have been, you know, for example, the Juvenile Domestic Relations District Court misdemeanor cases from 446 in 2019 to 169. And there are just some, some large drops, and I assume they all have to do with the, what the restructuring was. Can you explain to me what that is the restructuring? Um, you know, we we are not doing non-jailable traffic cases unless there's an outstanding reason to do it. Um, so I would have to come back to you to explain what exactly those numbers. Um, why? What is the difference between those numbers? Okay, that that would that um, would be helpful. And if you look over on that, and it's on pages two sixty-two and three of the printed budget. Um, and I would be interested in the future. For example, the. Um, Misdemeanor um, cases, criminal misdemeanor cases, went from 205 down to 88, um, and there's another one for traffic misdemeanor, 48 to 174. So again, I think it's this restructuring. If you could just explain that, that would be helpful. Yeah, I, I'm happy to. What I can tell you that um, is that, that since the Commonwealth Attorney's Office doesn't initiate the cases, uh, you know, I would have to speak to my partners, like court services and um, my law enforcement partners, to, to figure out the answer to that question. But what there was, you know, there were significant changes in the laws um, beginning in 2020 uh, for juvenile cases uh, that def that caused many, many more to be deferred uh, before being charged instead of being, you know, instead yeah. of petitions generating. And then um, when we came into office as well, uh, we, you know, we were we were the only jurisdiction in the in the state that was uh, looking at juvenile petitions 
um, as opposed to letting court services, um, who, which has the diversion programs, uh, actually make the determination. And they have the diversion programs, they have validated risk assessment tools, they have the officers and, and personnel to provide diversion. So we were the only state um, or the only jurisdiction in the mm -hmm. entire Commonwealth that was not allowing court services to do their job. Uh, and so, you know, we, we per, per the statute, we permitted um, the uh, court services to make the initial determination based on uh, their area of expertise. Yeah, th thank you. But yeah, so, sure some of them are not, some of them are germinal, some of them are not, but that would be very helpful to know. Right. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Mr. DeFerranti. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, so I appreciate the, the, your, your points on the uh, recruiting and the the additional budget considerations. Want to look at that? Um, maybe you can help with one question. The estimate on the body worn videos for next year goes down a little bit, and I don't know if you have a sense of why that is. Because of, it's been going up for a little bit. With experience, your the the personnel may be able to bring that down. Um, it's uh, I think it's. 260, you may, you know, it just went slightly, it, the estimates are slightly down next year. And if you don't have a sense now, we can certainly follow up. Um, but uh, it's been, it's been going up, which makes sense. Um, it may be that we were working out some of the kinks. I'm happy to follow up with you on that, though. Um, I, I'm happy to follow up, but can you point me to the columns that you're looking at, please? Sure. Sorry. It's, I think, 263, 264. 263 and 264, just at the bottom. At the end. Um, so it's the last two at the bottom of 263 and the top of 264. The 20, fiscal year 24 estimates are just a little bit down. Um, so I will let Ms. Saul Edwards answer that question because she actually sure. knows the answer to that question. <laughs> Smart. <laughs> sure. Oh, your mic. Thank you so much, and I hope this helps. So we're still looking at estimates. So right now we're mid-year 2023. It's likely that this figure actually could go up. This figure for the fiscal 23 represents, uh, and going into fiscal 24, that estimate, we have only the actual figures of 22 to work with. We've got an estimate that's based on our own internal tabulation from our software that tracks um, the downloading, the number and the hours of the video. When you combine the 22 actual and the fiscal 23 estimate and then divide by two <laughs> to get a fiscal 24 estimate, you end up with this um, fiscal 24 estimate number of roughly 16,500. Next year, when we do this budget exercise again, I'm going to go out on a limb and say you're probably going to see higher figures because we'll have a full year of actual figures for fiscal 23 to work with. Great. That's helpful. Gives me context. Thanks very much, Ms. Saul Edwards yep. and uh, Ms. Dacon. Thank you. So I'll just uh, do one quick question as it relates to your request for an investigator. And please correct me if my understanding of any of this is wrong, as it is likely to be. Um, but if it's primarily to support your work in investigating wage theft, um, how would that work with the, the state wage theft updates which allow employees to actually initiate a lawsuit for suspected wage theft violations? How does this work? in complement or in conflict with that? Well, it would provide, it would allow us to, to bring criminal penalties uh, for people that are engaging in wage theft as opposed to merely civil penalties. 
Um, and it would, you know, it, it really, given that the, the, the count, I, th I mean, I think the county should care about this because people don't normally, uh, you know, pursue their own civil remedies, um, and it's very challenging to pursue civil remedies. Uh, and if we are focusing on equity, what we want to do is really focus on the people who are the most vulnerable and uh, make sure that the, the government is doing its job to protect those people. Thank you. Mr. Carantonis, do you have uh, a, just hopefully a, a quick question? Very, it's, it's not even a question, it's just a request. Um, in, in the supporting measures uh, where Mr. Differenti left it at in page 263-64, which, uh, where you account for the number of uh, uh, body-worn camera videos uploaded and, and mm -hmm. the corresponding hours, uh, I would ask you, if you can, to add also the number of incidents that this actually reflects, because, you know, it makes a difference whether you have the same footage from three different uh, involved people on one incident or, you know, it's, it's uh, indeed a, you know, ten thousands of incidents that we have to account for. It would, uh, it would give us a good idea of what, what, what how, how much the... Uh, the program is working to produce the accountability we want. We, we will try. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Degani-Tafti. Thank you, Ms. Saul-Edwards. We appreciate it greatly. And we'll now invite to join us from the nethermost regions in the room, our magistrate, Mr. Adam. Please come on up. You're next. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for thank you for being here. And if you could turn your microphone on, we'll be ready to go. So now, now you need to press that button once more. There you go. All right. All right. Every once in a while, I do something right. And we'll get your presentation loaded on the screen. So take your time. Just let me know when it's ready to go. All right. Uh, as I said, I represent the magistrate's office for the 17th Judicial District, Commonwealth of Virginia. That encompasses Arlington County and the city of Falls Church. Uh, we're the first judicial officers that anyone deals with, basically, um, for any criminal or mental health matter and many other types of matters. Uh, we deal with, um, not only can we deal with the matters that are happening in Arlington and Falls Church, but we have um, authority to act in matters in the region and in other parts of Virginia as well under some circumstances. Um, next one, please. There's only eight and a half of us, uh, eight full-time people, including myself, and one person who is a part-timer. Uh, we operate 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. I know you guys have heard this before. Uh, you know, we didn't close on 9-11. We didn't close on January 6th of 2021. We haven't closed during the pandemic. Even when the um, you know, 
COVID hit the office, we managed to find a way to uh, stay open. And unlike many organizations, we could not do it by remote. We have to be there, and which may account for why you know, about two-thirds of my office came down with COVID. But um, that's a story for another day. Um, you know, uh, you know, basically, we issue all the warrants. Uh, we issue the search warrants, uh, emergency protective orders. We're also the ones who issue emergency custody orders, ESROs, and temporary detention orders. Um, we're, in some ways, the first line of defense for the judicial system but also the first line of defense for the um, defendants or the people who people wish to uh, to detain mentally because we're the ones who review the evidence and determine whether a person should be charged with a crime or detained for psychiatric treatment. Um, so that we make sure that no one's rights are taken away from them, their liberties um, reduced without proper evidence and without uh, the weighing in on it by an independent judicial officer. Next, please. Uh, one of the things I would, you know, we deal with all sorts of people, of, you know, and uh, everyone who comes into our office, both as a um, witness, as a victim, as a defendant, or as someone seeking mental uh, health problem, you know, help from, from because of a family member or friend. Uh, we're the ones who deal with everyone in a fair and honest way and try to apply the law as best we can. Uh, uh, you've heard about different programs. I remind people that we have worked with the sheriff's office and we have what they call the sheriff supervised release program where people who might otherwise be detained can be released with terms and conditions and with the sheriff supervising them and we have expanded that with a uh, combination of the sheriffs and the uh, mental health department to we have now called the magistrate post booking project where people have committed um, crimes who are obviously mentally ill. Uh, we can wrap them in services. Again, it's, and that is supervised by a combination of the sheriff's department and the mental health department and so again, people who um, you know, are facing criminal issues, but um, the jail is not the right place for them. Uh, this is another program where we can release them and uh, they are better off. And I think the community is better served by them being diverted um, at this stage. A 
I said, we rarely ask for a whole lot, and we rarely get much. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, the, uh, we try to work within whatever budget we have, and uh, you know, it's uh, next one, please. As you can see, we've asked in the past for figures. Um, even the past ones are to some extent rough, as, rough because our computer system doesn't catch everything we do. Not everything we do is on the computer. So the amount of transactions we actually do every year is probably considerably higher than the ones you see there. Um, the estimates in the future are my best guess as to what is going to happen. Uh, you know, it's, I can't tell you what mental health and criminal matters are going to um, happen in the future. Uh, a lot depends on many things, none of which are in the control of my office. Uh, but those are just rough estimates. And the other thing I would point out is uh, what we run into is we try to limp along with whatever equipment we have until such time as it, it basically craters. And then we come hat in hand looking for, for money to replace it. Um, and you know, the supplies we use up, or, as I said, I can't say we're going to use X number of things every month because Sometimes we're very busy during the pandemic. We didn't use nearly as much office um, supplies as we did once things started to open up. Um, the criminal system was quieter. The mental health system was quieter during the pandemic. As soon as things started to open up, we saw all these things skyrocket. It's, like I said, we don't have a linear way of requesting things because We have no control over uh, when our needs crop up. And yeah, like I believe that's it. I will. That is basically that. Uh, you know, I, I, there's eight and a half of us. We work very hard, and. We have to uh, cover two jurisdictions plus help out other places at times. Uh, one of the things we've done that doesn't show up on our figures here is the Alexandria magistrate system was basically crippled by a combination of lost staff and people who uh, were sick for the last couple of years. And we have done hearings for them and covered them for periods when they had no one at their office. They're now back close to full strength, but we've, uh, you know, we do we have had to uh, do more with with the same amount of people over the last several years. That um, and that's just you know we managed to make it work. Well, thank you for that. I, I'll start off with a couple of quick questions before mm -hmm. turning it over to Vice Chair sure. Garvey. 
So, um, you know, we remember the example of the chairs, which, true to your word, you didn't come to us until they were about. falling That's apart. What I was ask about. But I'm very much concerned about the lack of digitization that you described. And, uh, and the, our systems are, are um, run by the state. We have no control over them. Mm. Uh, we, you know, churn out the processes on them, and uh, but they, uh, we have, you know, they're all controlled by the office of the executive secretary of the Supreme Court of Virginia. Uh, I can get some of the, uh, you know, I can't get, say, I couldn't add our, the Alexandria processes onto our Arlington figures because I'm not the chief for Alexandria. I couldn't go in and, and uh, access those records. Uh, there are times, there are certain processes that we do by hand. It's hard to keep track of those because all the paperwork leaves the next day the court is open, goes to the court, or gets, or if it's an out-of-jurisdiction court, gets mailed out the next time the mailbox mail is available. So there's not a way to get exact figures. Um, you know, these are the best I can give you, and they're, they're underestimates. No, we, we appreciate it and, and weren't blaming you. I was actually going <laughs> to no, provide you with the invitation to maybe think about next year coming uh, with the digitization no, plan. Part, but part of the problem is that uh, we're, you know, we're state officers and we're the, um, the system we use is a statewide system that um, is run, uh, run through the Supreme Court of Virginia website. All, all the magistrate systems, all the courts, are all connected with it, and uh, I can only pull certain things from it. And I said, because some of the processes we do are by hand at times, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, they don't, and certain of the, of the types of processes, they don't, the Supreme Court of Virginia doesn't need to know about, so they don't keep records of them. Got it. <laughs> all right, Vice Chair Garvey. All right. So th this is a huge subject that maybe someone someday ought to delve into. Feels like we're maybe back still in the 18th century in some ways. Um, and I guess I did. I, did you get the, are the chairs okay? I think we you did. Yes, that, yes. The least you. we can I, do is give you some chairs. Yes, right? and, uh, yeah. and we're working on some new ones now, actually. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. 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 Anyway. These are these are inexpensive ones. I just I think I just want to say thank you because Mr. Adam, I, this is the only time I see you pretty much every year. Yeah. Come here, and you That's always good thing quiet. for both of us, I guess. Yes, it <laughs> is. It is. You quietly kind of go over what you do, which is 24-7, 365 days a week. You're working away. I never hear about the Office of the Magistrate. I've never heard of a complaint. Maybe there's some things that go wrong, but it's just fascinating, and I think you just are, are doing a really crucial job. Um, I think probably pretty well because we never hear about a problem. Maybe there's it's so antiquated we wouldn't hear about it, but I think you are, um, and I want to thank you for your work. It feels like at some point this needs to be brought into the 21st century, but we probably won't do that today. I, um, I was going to say uh, probably not in my lifetime, but uh... yeah, maybe not. I don't know. It's just it's <laughs> fascinating what you do. Thank you for what you do, and it does include working with the airport. I, I think you get people from the airport quite you a get, bit. Yeah, we cover. Uh, the, let's see, along with Arlington Police, Arlington Sheriffs, Arlington Fire Department, because their arson squad mm, goes through us, 
fact, just before I came here, we were doing some search warrants for the for the Arlington Sheriff's, I mean, the Arlington Fire Department's arson squad. Uh, we also do with Falls Church, um, police and sheriffs. We deal with Metro Transit, MWA, um, state police. Um, the DM, uh, the other day, even DMV um, investigators came in for state. Uh, we also deal with the Pentagon police. Uh, we deal with other federal agencies periodically when they deal with the task forces, which operate out of the uh, the airports, they have federal tax task forces out of, and um, periodically they have like gang task forces that are, we deal with. So we deal with people from all over the state, along with the federal agencies sometimes. And uh, yeah, so we, we deal with pretty much everyone that, uh, and we dealt with the Falls Church Fire Department's arson squad a couple weeks ago. Um, so we deal with pretty much everyone who uh, any law enforcement or law enforcement adjacent <laughs> organization that has a uh, that needs a uh, state or local um, warrant or ordinance you know, violation and or search warrants or yeah. needs well, to run something by us or something of that nature. Impressive. So thank you. It, very impressive. It's kind of everything everywhere all at once quietly and we hear from you once a year. Thank you. Terrific. Appreciate it. Well, thank you on that, yes, Mr. Adam. We will uh, we will excuse you for the afternoon and invite our friends that. from the Juvenile and Domestic Relations District Court to join us. Uh, according to my notes, we are going to be addressed by the Court Services Director Earl Conklin, but I see Judge Rob here as well as other guests. So everybody, come on, come on over. How's everybody doing? Good. 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 Focus on families. So when you invite us, you get the entire family. Um, we have Judge Rob, who is our chief judge. Judge Check, uh, who's also a judge in our court. Uh, also with us, we have the clerk of juvenile domestic relations, Renika Lardy, and Rick Strobach, our deputy director, and Alex Espinoza Smith, Smith, who is the person who brings the budget into life uh, by um, managing it. So uh, thank you. I'm going to uh, turn it over to Judge Rob and Judge Check. And just very briefly, I would like to thank the county, county board, county manager for your continued support of our uh, group homes and our after-school programs. They are at maximum capacity. Uh, I think there might be room for maybe one or two girls in the girls' group, group home, but without your continued support, we would seriously be in trouble. They are wonderful programs. They are really helping out the young people here. So we're, we're so very grateful for your, your continued efforts in that, in that regard. Um, we're also very grateful that there's going to be renovation, obviously, of the fourth floor in the courthouse and that the county is supporting um, technology being brought to our floor, which is very much needed um, since we deal with so many um, cases that have a lot of, of, of 
participants. And without the adequate technology, it makes it seriously more complicated. But we're very grateful for all of those things. I think what our biggest concern right now is, is the um, significant increase, and maybe Mr. Conklin has the numbers of our cases involving children in need of supervision. Typically in the past, those were brought forward by um, the school for truancy. Uh, right now, we, I would say probably over 90% of those petitions are being brought by desperate parents who are concerned about the use of fentanyl. And so they're literally in the courtroom begging Judge Chick and I to please save their child. So it's um, distressing because there are limited resources, obviously, for residential drug treatment programs for the children. And also for a lot of times there's a dual diagnosis with mental health component to it. I know DHS is working their hardest to expand their programs and to get the necessary personnel to help us out. But right now I think that there's one uh, intensive outpatient program in the county. And um, obviously we have concerns. And I think Judge Chicken, uh, you know, parents are asking us to basically save their children. And I, Judge Chick has had at least one or two children beg for help too. Mm -hmm. So Judge Chick, if you'd like to share. Yeah, you know, I, I think in, in some ways we're, we're um, it's it's very difficult, and um, you know I think we're we're doing our best um, to cook with the ingredients that we have, and um, you know when you have uh, children coming coming in front of you and parents asking for treatment and you know being able having to look at them and say you know we've looked at we've called over fifty different programs to try to get you into a program. Um, and you know we're being told no, and uh, and then to have a kid ask you to place them in detention to save them from themselves is it's it's heavy stuff, and so um, so it's a challenge. But you know we are uh, we're we're going to keep we're going we're going to keep doing what we can do, and and we're obviously you know very grateful for. Um, for the board's commitment to, to to addressing this issue too. So, thank you for that. Okay, um, moving to our PowerPoint. Um, I think the first thing we just want to highlight uh, is um, are we there yet? It's there. All right. It'll advance on your direction. Okay. So the um, the themes that we're really trying to to move forward with are diversion, evidence based services, and safety within families uh, in Arlington County. Uh, I think those are the overall uh, themes of both the probation work uh, that we see, of the work going on from the courts, and in our after uh, school community programs. Uh, next slide, please. So our department is really comprised of three separate um, uh, uh, sections, divisions. We've got the judges and the judges' chambers. Uh, then we have the clerk of court. And then we have the court service unit, uh, which provides uh, probation and, and uh, community programs. Within the judges' chambers, the key thing is the uh, that we're looking at in the next year um, is the courthouse renovations. I think 
By the time we come back next year, those will be underway. We will be displaced from our offices on the fourth floor and the courtrooms and um, will be in the midst of probably a, a little bit of chaos uh, leading up to the, the full renovation of the fourth floor. But uh, we believe it's worth it and will lead to you know, an environment that's more conducive uh, to our work with families. I think our judges are really driving um, that the fourth floor courtrooms at the end of the day be as trauma-informed in terms of their environment as we can possibly make. That's unusual. I don't know of another court that really is focusing uh, that way, um, but it is something that I think in our renovations we're really trying to recognize that we work with kids that are coming with significant levels of trauma and the environment, even in the courtrooms, uh, can be provided in a way that's helpful. Um, the clerk's office, I will say uh, the most important thing to them is the supplement. Um, and they're grateful uh, for the way the county supports their salaries. And then in uh, our court service unit, uh, we have our early diversion services, which is really where we try and, and connect with kids and families before they even hit the intake level in our court. Uh, these cases, we do not put their names in the state database. We do not um, identify them in any way that would lead to some future uh, um, higher level of service should they encounter the court. Um, these are cases that are referred by um, maybe the police department have a contact with a youth, the schools encounter a youth, uh, parents seeking help. Uh, we provide some case management support to them without entering them in the juvenile justice system. Um, our gang prevention efforts fall into this, our girls outreach program. Um, those are really uh, a focus that we try and, and maintain. Uh, then court intake, you, know, you heard from the magistrate, well our intake office is the juvenile um, level and the domestic um, relations level of, of that kind of a function. So again, they're 24-7, they answer the call from the police. When they have a youth in custody, uh, they respond to, um, during business hours to, to families seeking uh, to file protective orders or um, child uh, support, child custody, those kinds of matters, or child welfare. And then our probation and parole services, these are for kids uh, primarily uh, that we're talking about here. Um, we have, as of the end of January, we had 129 active cases under our supervision. Um, overwhelmingly Arlington residents. Uh, I know there's often a, a question about who we see in the courts. I will say at this point in time, given the, the cases we're seeing from Chins, the uh, filing by parents, it is, it is uh, swung heavily towards Arlington residents looking for help in the JDR court. Uh, then adult probation. Um, these are largely domestic violence cases, um, and uh, we have about, uh, at any given time, a monthly average of 200 adults under our supervision. So those are the general numbers that, that we're seeing uh, in court. Um, they are trending upward, I would say, across the board, um, as we will talk in a minute. And then the other part of our court service unit is our, our community programs. Uh, Judge Rob was talking about them. Argus House and Aurora House are our group homes. Um, I will say... Uh, all of our programs are serving kids that present with fentanyl issues right now without the tools they really need to do it. We're having kids in our group homes without substance abuse treatment. I mean, historically, those may have been kids we would have declined to serve. Um, we're having kids in our after-school programs that have fentanyl issues, and they're not engaged in substance abuse treatment along with those services. They're not getting the mental, uh, the behavioral health services that, that we need. So that, that's the challenges that we're facing uh, across the board. Um, our after-school programs are at capacity. Um, we'd love to find ways to expand them. Um, 
They are the least disruptive to kids, and, and we're not pulling them out of their homes. We're not putting them in a group home. We're not putting them in detention. Um, long term, they are living at home with their family members and coming to us after school and working on all the, the same challenges that they would have um, they would work on and in, 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 without being removed from their home. So those are just excellent programs. I can say I don't know of many uh, jurisdictions that offer those. I mean, we're grateful for those and would love to find a way to expand them. And then our safe havens program is the other community program, which really is uh, essential in, in keeping people safe that have protective orders that have histories of domestic violence. Uh, they need visitation with their children and they need um, to do uh, custody exchanges and they need a safe place to do it and that's what safe havens provide so um, we're, we're really uh, value that program and use it uh, extensively all as Judge Rob mentioned these programs are operating at capacity with waiting lists typically so um, our budget highlights um, I want to just emphasize you know you'll you're hearing fentanyl a lot in this discussion uh, it's not a word or a moment in time a crisis that we can separate from our work right now um, but the solution is definitely going to be multi-agency and our collaboration with the uh, human, uh, Department of Human Services, Child and Family Services with the APS. Um, there are great partnerships and discussions going on right now. Um, there are some promising things on the horizon. Uh, the challenge for us is right now we have, we were talking about the Chins cases uh, that, that have been filed by parents. Right now we have 25 youth who are actively using fentanyl under our supervision uh, and we are using the tools that we have um, we are seeing these kids who are typically not eligible for detention we are seeing them go to detention out of safety concerns we are seeing uh, elevated um, uh, work by probation officers serving them intensely uh, working with their families uh, we're seeing them you know, placed in our community programs largely because they have fentanyl use and the elevated safety concerns that we all feel when that happens. Our detention center has um, by, you know, become a de facto uh, detox program for these kids. And it's just, they're not getting medical assistance. You know, I mean, they certainly are getting medical help from detention, but they're not getting medical assisted treatment for fentanyl use or, or opioid use. And that's concern. They're, they're in distress when they go to detention. Um, they're having active withdrawal. So those are the circumstances that we're in. So uh, there is a lot of effort going in to build something. Um, it's down the road. It's not immediate. We're struggling with the immediate needs of kids that we are we have on our caseload. Um, I think that covers that page. So we're, we're really, um, you know, our, our focus on diversion and trying to work with kids in non-court ways. Um, the expanded capacity to serve family, our caseloads are going up. Um, when, you know, 10 years ago, we had probably 15 probate, juvenile probation officers. Today we have seven. Um, we have reduced those. That's how we started the group home, or that's how we started our Young Achievers program. We've shifted resources as caseloads went down over the last decade. We shifted to new services. Um, we have a couple of vacancies we've, we're filling. Um, our caseloads are definitely climbing. The courts are very busy. Judges are on the bench from, I mean, we're hearing cases, they're starting cases at 8 o'clock and they're going till after 5 many days. So it really is um, a lot of demand on the ju juvenile court system right now. Uh, and then parent engagement is always a, a focus for us. Um, 
So in terms of our equity issues, uh, you know, we all went to the Georgetown Racial and, Eth uh, racial and Eth uh, Ethnic Disparities con uh, uh, Certificate Program um, years ago, and we still continue to work on what we developed uh, in that program. Um, our racial and ethnic disparities team in JDR consists of both judges, myself, uh, the head of the community services board, the head of child uh, and family services, a uh, member from the Commonwealth's attorney's office, representative from the public defender's office, police department, and APS. So we've got leaders from all of those organizations that get together and look at what's going on in juvenile court and our, our legal system related to kids, the child serving agencies that are that are part of that discussion with a goal of, of trying to reduce the disparities that we have in our court system. We have disparities uh, of the kids that we are, we have seen um, these parents filing um, chins cases. Um, I've got the number, but I, I believe it is 90% of them are Hispanic parents filing with our court system uh, to get help for their kids. That's what we're seeing in the juvenile court. Some of, our, some of the youth do not speak English, which um, exacerbates the problem of trying to find services for them. Programs that can serve uh, a Spanish-speaking only youth um, is a big challenge. So when it comes to equity, we know that the um, majority of the kids we see come to intake, process through our system, go to are placed in detention, are largely kids of color. Um, and um, that is something we are trying to address. The way we address it in our racial and ethnic disparities team is by looking at the decision, decision points within our system so that when we look at what happens at intake, we look at it by race, ethnicity, gender, geography, where the kid lives, and offense. Um, and by looking at those things, we can see if there are disparities in who gets, the, who gets access to diversion, who gets sent to detention, and we can look at those things by race and ethnicity. And then when we look at offense, we can find we can then tell from that whether or not you know kids with similar offenses are being handled in a des disparate way. So that's that's um, you know kind of our initiative. The task of trying to reduce who comes to our front door in juvenile court um, is a big one, and that's a county effort. That's not something we can we can tackle by ourselves. And I think that's where. Our, um, the team that we have in, in juvenile court is, is helpful. Data drives that. Our, since we started this team, the data we're collecting and processing related to disparities in our system has improved dramatically um, as a result of this uh, racial and ethnic disparities team. So we're not where we want to be. We don't like the numbers that we see. We don't like the disparities we see. Um, but now we're at least at a point where we can identify them. We can look at it with data. And we can meet as a team and as a, as a county and try and talk about solutions to address it. I don't know if either of you want to talk about address that red team or not, if there's anything else I left unsaid. I think you said it pretty well, Earl. Okay. Um, next page, um, you know, I don't know there are any dramatic changes here. Um, the IPE program, um, we're grateful that that funding is included and increased. That, is, that stands for the Intervention, Prevention, and Education Program, which is another um, early diversion program. Uh, if a youth is identified as having indicators of gang involvement or risk for gang involvement, that is a program that we contract for with Northern Virginia Family Services, and they provide uh, a 90-day, sometimes longer, intervention, intensive intervention with kids and their parents 
um, going to the home, providing case management, providing support, education, group work, referrals, whatever is needed, without those youth having to come into the court system to get those services. So it's a critical program. We haven't raised the funding in 10 years, and so uh, there's an increase of, of 30000 this year uh, going to that, and we're appreciative of, of that in the recommended, recommended budget. Um, our gang numbers are going up. IPE is also at capacity with a waiting list this year. That's concerning. We haven't had those level of, that level of referrals. These largely come from um, the school system, identifying youth, the court system, parents reaching out for help, or um, the court, uh, the, the um, I say police, schools, parents, and our court system all make referrals uh, to this program for kids. And it is, you know, it's been at capacity all year and has a waiting list. So there's like a three-month delay in getting kids into the program. So we're seeing that, um, you know, challenge in our gang uh, prevention efforts. Um, our gang specialist is getting referrals uh, and outreach from schools. We do, we do groups. At, he does groups at the schools. He does uh, work with parents, and the referrals to him have have consistently increased. Uh, the demand for intervention groups at the schools. Uh, he goes to the school and will do like a lunchtime group with kids once a week uh, with kids that are identified when they have enough. And, um, it's very effective, um, but the requests for those continue to grow. So it's uh, this, the issues around gangs, I would say, at the prevention level are uh, increasing. Mr. Conklin, if I could just interrupt you for a moment. What's really uh, very exciting about that program is a lot of the youth that uh, successfully completed it come back and talk to the other kids in the program, and they, they volunteer at the annual soccer tournament. So it's a program that kind of gives back to the program because of the successful youth that were, were serviced by the program. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt Thank you. you. No, please, I'm glad. Something positive, it's nice to hear. So the other, other changes here are, uh, whenever the state employees get an increase, we get an increase for the reimbursement to the county for our probation staff. Um, so that, that shows up here as well as some changes in the, the uh, allocation of the Safe Havens grant. Um, this, this page, I think I've addressed these, con these concerns. It really gets back to the increase in the number of cases filed uh, for children in need of su supervision or services, by, largely by parents. The school system is the other place that can file these for truancy. Um, this year to date, compared to last year to date, there's been an increase of 96% in the number of those cases coming into the court. And those are a number of kids, not, you know, so multiple charges. We're talking about the number of kids have increased by 96%. Um, that's a pretty dramatic increase. Just in terms of raw numbers, they went from 26 a year ago to 51 in the current year. They, we went from 17 filed by parents or on youth who were Hispanic to from 17 to 30 this year. So um, that's an increase of you know, even more than, than 96, or than, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a huge increase. So, and it is parents filing out of desperation to get help for their kids. Um, that's what's driving uh, this, and it, it is fentanyl and a lack of uh, their ability to find services. What's concerning is our numbers were trending in the right direction when it comes to you know, the reduction of, of kids involved in the court, to the reduction in the use of detention. Um, those numbers have shifted, and they're now trending in the wrong direction, and that's something that we're, we're, we're concerned about. Um, 
it's not you know police arresting kids and bringing them into the into the court system that's driving our numbers it's parents asking for help which is a whole different thing and they're asking for help you know doesn't mean there's not a system problem the system problem is that courts becoming the first resort because resources that we used to turn to are not available to level so court is the first resort not the last resort which is where we want it to be the last resort um, for parents um, this just shows the changes in detention I think um, this was FY 23 year-to-date I think through January it continues to go up if you look at Arlington's use of our detention center you can see it's uh, I mean, last year, I mean, with some of some of 22 was pandemic pandemic driven. You know, I mean, cases in court were down. You know, at an abnormally low level during the pandemic, um, which is a positive thing. But they've spiked back up to where they were, like in 21 uh, and beyond. So they're like double of what. That's the average daily population. So that tells you on average how many kids Arlington has living in the detention center on on that day. So the average so far this year is um, over eight kids, uh, almost nine. And that's more than twice in, uh, what we had in 21 and, you know, four times what we had in, in uh, 22. Um, last thing I will say about the detention center is um, the types of kids we're placing there also places stress on them. They're watching these kids with withdrawals. They're, um, they're struggling with the, the trauma needs of the kids that we're, we're placing there and um, of their substance abuse concerns. So um, not only the numbers going up, but the, the challenges of those kids and what they're dealing with is going up. You know, um, our mental health services to our kids in detention is met through Child and Family Services, DHS. They have a, a therapist assigned to work with our kids that are in the detention center, which is a very positive thing. Um, it's largely crisis-oriented, but they, they, will, they will really respond to the needs of kids. So um, we're very appreciative of that um, provision by DHS. And then the detention center has still got this uh, renovation looming um, on the horizon. So. Indeed. <clears throat> Thank you, Judges Rob and Chick and Mr. Conklin. I think uh, absent constraints, we would love to engage with you for a long time on these matters. Uh, but today we do have constraints, and we also do have three other uh, offices that are looking to have their opportunity. So colleagues, I'll ask if you have any questions or comments that you keep them tight. Mr. DeFranti. Sure. Thank you, Mr. Chair. So um, I think there's, as I understand it, there's two bodies of work there's the, that we've been working on in the last weeks. Um, there's some tightening up and some work DHS is doing with our, um, with our schools separately. I think I recall that there's some, um, there may be some capacity for outside referrals. And so... Um, I don't know whether this is for you, Mr. Conklin, or Mr. Manager, but um, clearing those barriers for accessing all supply for those 20 to 30 kids who are addicted, who need help, do I have that right? Have I described sort of one body of work um, as, are there outside services, and have I described the body of work uh, correctly? I think one is for Mr. Conklin and Mr. Manager, and I'm happy to I hope you don't mind me just naming the challenge, and I'm happy to engage further after this session. But um, I, I thought those two quick questions would could be helpful, and I don't know they would go to Mr. 
Mr. Conklin, then a manager. I don't know who wants to go first. I, I would just add, Earl can add more to this. I think you're actually going on a tour later this week with Michelle to look for additional space for the day program. Yes. Um, that's one thing that we're focused on, but that's one of many. I think the challenge is um, that we're, we're really facing is um, the level of need these kids, these, these youth are presenting with is typically, is, typically goes beyond um, basic outpatient services. Yeah. It, it escalates to the need for intensive outpatient or uh, residential treatment. And those are usually provided under contract with vendors. And the challenge we have is there are insufficient vendors available to provide that service, uh, even with the funding um, to, to obtain that in those ways, um, it's difficult to find vendors that um, are, sure. are available. So that would be a, a DC, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Virginia, state of Virginia, everywhere it's difficult to find those vendors. I think there's some great work I know um, being done sure. in DHS to try and identify and reduce and address the barriers for some of those vendors. Historically, we haven't had a lot of youth that would need substance abuse, residential level of substance abuse treatment. Um, sure. So we, I think that's that's part of the the reasons Moore is not currently in place. Great. I'll follow up. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Ms. Garvey. Yeah, I think I th thank you so much for this very sobering presentation. Um, m m what I'm hearing bottom line is, I mean, the problem is acute. It's real. It's big. And it's really important. Giving just doing more money isn't going to solve it because there isn't space, there aren't people, there aren't so that it's a systemic, systemic thing. I hear the seat ahead nods because I think we're willing to do quite a bit to try to. I know the managers, we all are, but we're up against. Um, we're having to build a whole system and machine that we don't have available yet. So, anything we can do to help, let us know as we continue to move forward. I think everybody's really committed. So, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Carantonis. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, Indeed, sobering uh, presentation, um, and we hear it from parents as well. And, and to be honest with you, Mr. Conklin, for decades, uh, parents were hearing, "Unless your child is in the system, I cannot help it." <laughs> so, uh, you know, that comes by, among many other things, comes back and bites us today. Uh, what's the confidence that some parents may have? in this last resort that was presented as the only resort uh, just a few years ago. I was in front of these conversations. Uh, I want to ask you something very specific uh, before I thank you so much for the enormous work that you do in Argus and Aurora and uh, even in the juvenile detention center that still beats me. I don't understand how you can even remotely provide detox services in that, in that setting. I, I just don't understand that. But nevertheless, um, shelter care. So uh, I see here a, a significant increase in, in uh, uh, bed days. Uh, how are we capacity-wise uh, in this? So the shelter care uh, is operated by the Juvenile Detention Commission and is largely funded by the city of Alexandria. Um, you know, we don't uh, purchase specific bed space, you know, like we don't buy a number of beds in the, in the shelter care. We used to do that. Um, you know, more than a decade ago, we had f like four beds that were committed to Arlington. We fully funded them. Um, lack of use over time, we've reduced that, and now we pay as we need. Um, we uh, haven't had a, a problem accessing needed bed space, but 
I think um, as a detention commission looks at changes in the way it works, we may come back and reformulate how we're, our agreements with the city of Alexandria and the detention commission around our use of that, that space. It's important because when kids don't need to be in juvenile detention, we don't want them in juvenile detention. And having a uh, uh, you know, short-term, non-secure, you know, alternative like shelter is essential for both us and um, child and family services, child welfare, when they need to have a shelter place for a youth. So, yeah, and I and I think that this is a model that could work with your our still atrophic way to <laughs> to respond with services beyond uh, you know external services for for uh, uh, you know treating. Uh, these two months. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. I appreciate it. Sorry we can't continue the conversation here, but we will elsewhere. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you all so much. And I see uh, Mr. Henshaw is here. Welcome you to come up to the front. You're next. I thought I was going to be the, the cleanup batter. That's not important. <laughs> Mark, would you uh, take that one off so Brian's not in stereo? Yeah, so on. All right. Thank you, Mr. Chair, members of the board, county manager, uh, member of the public, anyone who's watching. Thank you for hearing the Arlington General District Court uh, Clerk's Office today. Appreciate it. Uh, I'm Brian Henshaw, Clerk of Court for Arlington General District Court. Arlington uh, GDC consists of three judges. Uh, Chief Judge Daniel Lopez, Judge Fran O'Brien, Judge and Judge Rucker, and also our court administrator, um, who is Tarsha Fisher, who works in the judicial chambers. Um, next slide, please. And we we can go ahead and skip to the third slide. We've sat through many of these presentations. Uh, I'll be happy to review what the general district court does, but if you all, I can basically sum it up by looking at the slides. So, uh, so we'll move on to our budget highlights, if that's all right with you all. Sure. All right. So next slide, please. All right. Um, I am excited to say that in the past year, we've successfully launched electric, electronic filing or e-filing through the Arlington County website uh, through a collaborative effort uh, with the Department of Technology Services through the Digital Innovation Team. Uh, we have received extremely positive feedback from the public and the uh, legal communities for its ease of use and connectivity. Uh, this was created at minimal cost to the county. I think that's what's important for you all to know. And that the, the only expense was truly basically the time we worked on the uh, creating the functional abilities. A lot of these abilities were, uh, were based upon the web service that the county was already op operating and implementing through other departments. So briefly, our system just requires a pre-existing case, but it saves time and is easier to submit records and case materials for cases. Some examples of what we're currently being accepted are motions, notices of appearances, continuances, bill of particulars, and several, several other filings that was only accepted in the past in person at the front counter. Uh, we continue to explore more options and feel that eventually we will uh, get to original filings coming in through e-filing as well. Uh, 
we also will continue looking at other innovative ways to make general district courts um, more accessible. Next slide. With regard to focus on the equality, uh, we're continuing with our, um, our behavioral health docket. Uh, we've explained this in years past. Uh, it is still a very successful. It is a col true collaborative effort with many different departments uh, throughout the uh, county, which includes Department of Human Services, Public Defender's Office, uh, Jail Forensics Services staff, Commonwealth Attorney's Office, Supervised Probation Offices, and Community Corrections, as well as the, both Arlington County Police Department and Arlington County Sheriff's Department. Uh, we've continued, one of the things that came out of the pandemic was the legal services in Northern Virginia to uh, have a, um, provide uh, basically any kind of vice to tenants with regard to unlawful detainers with regard to our civil uh, court practices. Um, this is uh, cooperative and uh, responded to with the Tenant Landlord Commission to revamp our cover sheet for filing UDs placed on that LL with notice requirements prior to filing an eviction action. So we've continued to offer that aid outside of our civil courtrooms. Next slide. Uh, budget summary, our budget sum, um, summary really does not present any new changes that are pro um, proposals from years past and is mainly establishing established to cover everyday expenses and salaries. Uh, there are some noted uh, losses in revenue uh, due to the significant decline in traffic summons, uh, but this trend is already starting to begin to rebound. We think this is kind of post-pandemic, uh, basically. Uh, and, and also our, our sheriffs and uh, police departments being, uh, you know, uh, in a crisis for, uh, for personnel, basically. Um, we continue to monitor this, but uh, please understand the GDC does not have any control over the number of cases year to year, and, then, uh, and that is not our primary focus of our office. Next slide. Uh, as always, we're pre appreciative of the continued support of the courtroom technology improvements and the equipment that is, that is needed. Need has arised, uh, but I can confidently say that at the end of this fiscal year, all four of our courtrooms will be outfitted with a Microsoft Hub, which allows virtual hearings and other technological needs as it relates to providing access to justice. We will continue, we ask for continued support as new technological needs arises. Uh, we also continue to um, appreciate the support of the employee supplement for GDC work uh, staff employees. Uh, by providing this supplement, the, it provides staff members with more comparable salary for living within the area or surrounding areas. And also the supplement provides an extra incentive for hiring highly qualified staff. Finally, the clerk's office would also, uh, is very supportive of the continued courthouse renovations that are currently ongoing. Uh, I know JDR just mentioned we are working very much, we're playing the sandbox is what I would say. And so with all of our, our neighbors and other uh, colleagues throughout the courthouse as needs arise. And so the only thing I would like to conclude with is uh, I'd like to just let you know that on behalf of the General District Court Clerk's Office, I would like to publicly thank the DTS department for their continued support and assistance uh, in upgrading our presence on the Arlington County webpage uh, and they're creating better access to justice for the public. I would also like to thank our public, our facilities for all their assistance in helping us maintain our office and our facilities and that they are highly, always highly responsive and willing to help us whenever issues arise. That is all I have. We try to keep it pretty short and simple for you. Well, we appreciate that. Thank you, Mr. Henshaw, and appreciate your patience in waiting towards uh, near the very end of this work session. 
colleagues, are there any questions about the work of the GDC? Very good. All right. This is helpful. Great presentation. We appreciate knowing that maybe one good thing that came out of the pandemic was maybe it provided you a little bit of the space to dig into the e-filing project. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So. And, and one thing I would say, I can't really comment to the magistrates, but one of the things I'd say from a, from a state standpoint, I think it is important to know that the, the pandemic actually did thrust um, OES, the Office of Executive Secretary, into a lot of um, new directions. Mm. The technology is coming. I think it kind of pushed them a little bit further. Uh, I don't have a problem saying historically, uh, Virginia is conservative moving through the judicial um, processes. But with that being said, I think it's pushed us in some new directions. And, and going to some of the conferences, now that we're starting to finally get back to conferences, we're seeing a lot of this being presented to us. So I think there are changes on the way. We do get handcuffed because you're talking a little bit from, pardon the pun, there was no pun intended there. <laughs> but what I was gonna say is we do uh, sometimes run into the fact that you are dealing with the whole state and in various different areas of the state, there's a challenge. So meeting the needs here might be different than meeting needs elsewhere in Virginia. So. Thank you for that. Thank okay. you. All right. Thank you. Have a good evening. Good evening. Good to see you. And we'll now invite our uh, clerk of the circuit court, Paul Ferguson. And I see Ms. Dietrich is also here. Welcome. Come on up. I don't know if Mr. Henshaw told you, but he was a town manager of Haymarket. He understands what all of you uh, oh, I do. Doing, what did yeah. Mr. Schwartz do? We have a special. Didn't know that. Okay, okay, yeah. <laughs> well, might want to adjust that chair, Mr. Clerk. Yeah. Well, I noticed the Commonwealth Attorney. Uh, maybe it's good for me to be lowered down an inch or two. Thank you for the opportunity to be before you. Uh, I know the hour is late. Uh, any success that the circuit court clerk's office has is, is due to the support we receive from this great county government. We uh, thank uh, the Department of Management Finance for uh, assisting us um, during this budget season. As in past ones, uh, HR has been extremely helpful to us this year and over the past couple of years with uh, hiring um, challenges that we've had. Uh, and you as a board have been supportive to our office, so thank you. Um, would you like me to waive my presentation and just take questions or? No, you've, you've waited, you have your time. No, please, <laughs> please, please. I'll do my best to keep it short. If you find efficiencies as you're doing it, I'm not gonna object, but please. Yeah, okay, I'll, well, this first slide I thought would be interesting. Christina Dietrich uh, assembled this, this is, Instead of me reading the mission statement, it puts a lot of the words that we, uh, you know, use and interact with. And so, if you take a look at it, I could, I could spend a lot of time just going through all those different words. But take a look at it. If anything, if anything catches your eye as far as one of the words being special to you, uh, let's talk about it. It doesn't have to be uh, during this work session. But uh, that's a lot of what we do there up on the screen. Next slide. Oh, I talked last year about the uh, civil case numbers being uh, sort of like a straight line upwards, like a hockey stick. Uh, fortunately, that's leveled off, uh, which is good news. Uh, it's down 11%, but even with down 11%, it's still at historically high levels. Our civil division remains very busy. Uh, our e-filing um, system, there's a lot of choice of venue. 
uh, especially for uh, collection type of cases and uh, our e-filing system such that I think it's easier to use to go to Arlington than really anywhere else in Northern Virginia. Uh, that could change over time, but for right now, I, I see that being, being constant. Uh, criminal numbers are up 10%, but if you uh, look at 10-year numbers, they're still at historically uh, low levels. Uh, so, um, you know, that's, that's kept us busy with that slight increase. That third uh, number there is not, not a pretty one. Um, it has to do with uh, interest rates uh, really killing off the refinance market. Uh, so things have slowed uh, as far as land transactions. It's uh, not a good sign overall for, for what the economy could be in the future, and I'm just hoping that, that uh, that's not the case. But, but that's, that, that number there is cause for worry. We're bringing in less revenues to the county because of that. Next slide. Uh, one of the things uh, I appreciated the Commonwealth Attorney putting up that picture of the uh, expungement fair. I had even forgotten about that since it was uh, months ago. Uh, we, we're, we're constantly trying to think of ways we can uh, help the public when there's a limit to what we can do. People come to us needing lawyer, needing legal advice. We can't do that. We try to direct them to the right place. Uh, we've got uh, a law library that we now have uh, two new young law librarians, and they're working. And uh, they're, uh, we had Patty Petrosoni, our uh, former law uh, librarian, just recently retired. Um, she, the um, legal legal services of Northern Virginia was mentioned by Mr. Henshaw. They they are have been a really good partner, and they have assisted a number of people for us. But there's only so much they can do. So uh, we don't have a magic answer, but we do our best to get people the information they need. We have a pro, uh, a self-represented uh, divorce packet um, that gives people all the forms. I don't know that I could do it myself if I had to go through it, but it's, but it, but it's all their form is the best we can do. And I, I uh, serve as the uh, clerk's representative to the uh, Access to Justice Commission on a statewide basis. So I continue to pick up things and learn there. Um, this is uh, something that was chaired by uh, Chief Justice Goodwin, uh, which was why I was interested in participating, one of the reasons, and now uh, he's uh, handed over to Justice McCollum, but it's a high-level group. Uh, Christina, did I cover everything on there? You want me to? Yeah, good enough? Okay. Next slide. <laughs> Uh, we really don't have uh, much in the way of changes in this year's budget that you uh, as a board have been very generous as far as compensation and um, that drives some numbers up. I talked about the decrease in land records transaction and that's why those revenue numbers are down. Next slide. We are going to get a new land record system which should excite our, our uh, real estate assessments office and uh, those over here on the county side that, that work with us as far as uh, property uh, you know, transactions. Uh, it's in the RFP process right now, and so I can't talk a lot about it, but uh, hopefully by this time next year we'll have it up and running, and uh, there'll be a lot of improvements for the public also. It's something we're very excited about in our office. Uh, one of the things we are trying to continue to do and. Uh, you have been very helpful in providing funds to backscan records. Uh, we started 
uh, digital in 2013, but that didn't take care of the back files. So we've been slowly and surely, we have everything back scanned in our land records area, which is important for uh, the public and title searchers, but we've still got a long way to go for criminal and civil cases. So if you ever have any extra funds, that is a, a, a place you could direct them. Not, I'm not asking, I'm not saying it's there this year, uh, but we continue to try to um, allocate a portion of our budget towards that. Um, it also protects against degradation. Um, there uh, are going to be some renovations going on in the courthouse that's been mentioned. Um, I hope eventually it, it uh, comes to the sixth floor and we're able to uh, rework some of the space, but I think we're um, rightly so not, not at the top of the list for the, for the renovations. Next slide. I think that's it. Any questions for me? Terrific, sure. I'll, I'll start us off and then and then Vice Chair Garvey. Uh, so with the land records and the decline, um, could you just provide us, not now but later, with how that looked month by month? Um, you know, there's been some sort of popular analysis that, you know, there was this cratering of real estate activity, yeah. but then as people became less spooked and realized the world hadn't, um, been entirely destroyed that there was an uptick towards years end. I would want to see if that was reflected in what we saw locally. We can do that. It was, it was starting to slow down a little bit last budget cycle, um, but I had no idea <laughs> that it was going to slow to the extent it has. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's not at 2008 levels. That was, that, that was awful. Right. So um, there's, still, there's still some hope, but we'll, we'll, we can provide that data for Mr. Dorsey. Yeah. Thank you. Um, we were told by staff that they wanted us to be prepared and not to have to cause them to do a lot of follow-up, but that's that's something we didn't come with. And we This will be an easy one, okay. right? Yeah, it, it is easy. It is easy. And, we're, and we don't um, need help from DMF fund. We have, that, we have the information. And, and I'll just note a factoid that just jumped out at me. It really means nothing. It is entirely a factoid. But in, in calendar 22, we re reached the point where we issue more concealed carry permits than we actually have marriage licenses. I don't know what that means about a community, but it doesn't sound great. I'll, I'll turn it over to you. I'm pick up right That's where you were, Mr. <laughs> Chair. So looking at the, the, the land records, I mean, actually, it was a tremendous amount in um, 2021. Yeah. So it looks to me like savvy Arlington, they're in there doing everything all at once, and then they're just getting ready, and now they're holding back, and once the feds change it, they'll be ready to go back again. That's my guess. So it'll be interesting to look at the month yeah, by month. Yeah, the, but the interest rates are been raised pretty high, so they have to... Yeah. I, know, oh, I know, I know, but every little bit that comes down will help. At any rate, the question I had, which is actually where you left, so marriage licenses, yes, there was that, but they also plunged from 2019, so what's, what's going what on we, there? What we did was, um, with COVID, we started doing marriage licenses by appointment. And we decided to continue that, giving preference to Arlington and Falls Church reference, uh, residents. Uh, we still do plenty of marriage licenses for those that live elsewhere, um, but we want to make sure that So our 2019 people, had more people outside of Arlington? Well, not, not, we, we used to just have a ton of people come from all over uh, to get a marriage license in Arlington because it was the most convenient place. Um, they didn't, you know, so okay. uh, we just decided that we wanted to focus more on our own uh, residents. <laughs> I don't know. We could hire an Elvis but, and that was, impersonator that was, that, that and make some COVID. money. Who knows? Well, it's, 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 it's right. a lot harder to get a marriage license in D.C. and Maryland than it is in Virginia. Yeah. And then Arlington is the most convenient 
place for people to come. I just I just see a whole logo thing going on. But anyway, that's that's great. I was just curious about that. Thank you. But but you you won't hear any complaints from your constituents about getting a marriage license. We we they they apply. We get them right. But we might hear them from other people. But they're not our concern. They're not going to complain. Yeah. Uh, well, we try, we, we try to get to them, too, but we just try to get to the Arlington ones that, first. Love it. And Falls Church. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. All right, Mr. DeFerranti. Um, well, I'm happy to have contributed to one of the uh, calendar the marriage license. 2020, yes, 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 uh, 1,358. Yes. So I don't have questions. Uh, I'm mindful of time, uh, but thank you for the work that you do. Thank you. And Mr. DeFerranti, Mr. Carantonis, excuse me. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you, Mr. Ferguson, for 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 the as somebody who had to rely on a reliable but was unreliable bus service to get uh, the to get to the place where where to get a marriage license. I really appreciate the fact that it's metro accessible. That's yeah. a great thing. I wanted to go back to the uh, concealed guns, uh, uh, concealed handgun permits. Um, of course, they are. This is this is still a lot. It's over. I mean, right. twelve hundred estimated, uh, twelve fifty-five actual. We had a conversation here on uh, you know f fostering or, or supporting a new gun safety culture and making it more pop popular. So my question to you is: Is it at all possible within your purview uh, when you issue a a permit to also furnish? Uh, a, a sort of a brochure that in, in, informs the new legal gun owner about things like safe storage and safe handling. It's a good idea, Mr. Carantos. We'd be glad if you if you have something like that. I have I have a couple of examples. <laughs> okay. Just for you, um, uh, we we can we can. Uh, I would I would love to get back to you on, on okay. this so that with every license comes some come, sure. come some instructions on how to we'll, keep guns this is an example safe. but we'll we'll wait for uh, you know, maybe something that was kind of smaller than a than a piece of paper like a oh, just uh, like a, a yeah, like, like something some bookmark about we have we have we yeah. hand those type of things out for legal services and um, for other self representing that would be easy for us to give out Okay, thank you. Good, good idea. Welcome to gun ownership. We're a full-service board, right? <laughs> <laughs> just, just make sure you don't kill anybody. No, 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 no. Okay, on that note, thank you. Thank, thank you, you for, for once again for all your support. Appreciate it. And clean up, Mr. Haywood. So, um, thanks for having me. Of course. It's nice to see you all again. Um, starting with our PowerPoint, uh, I'm going to go off track as I often do, but because uh, I want to give you an example or some examples of the critical roles we're playing in uh, a lot of the county funded diversion initiatives. But if you might move to the next slide, we'll kick it off by staying on track. So, um, that is our department's mission. Can we uh, skip to the next also? 
and this is our overview, which sort of restates that in longer form, which our goal is to be, to, well, we aspire to be a model of zealous client-centered defense. Um, and in Arlington, I think because we have the support of the county, we also aspire to be an agent of positive change more broadly in the local criminal legal system. So I'm sure you are wondering how we're doing with that mission and how um, county funding is helping us achieve those goals. And the good news is that we're doing very well. And that is with your considerable help. I know I say that every time I'm here. I can't say it enough. It really makes an absolutely huge difference. So thank you so much for pledging your support to our office and to um, the overall mission of our community to make our criminal legal system more humane. Um, but there's sort of a but to this. Uh, an irony of indigent defense is that the better that you get at your jobs, the harder those jobs become. So if you're taking a holistic approach, uh, there's just a lot more to do. And I think it's useful to consider what the opposite of, of zealous client-centered defense looks like. Um, you may, may or may not have heard the, the sort of term or phrase, meet them and plead them. So this is a, a term used with respect to like really bad defense attorneys. Um, it really, what it's implying is the person just shows up for court, they greet their client, shake their hand, and just pleads the case out. Uh, that person will have done no fact investigation, they would have done no mitigation investigation, no legal research, no trial prep, just shows up and wings it. Um, and often I think that results in them trying to strong arm clients into giving up their rights and pleading guilty. It's not the way things should be done. And it's actually a main reason that sometimes they call it for, as a factor in the trial penalty, um, but it's one reason that our, our system has become as punitive as it has because um, defense attorneys sometimes aren't playing the, their, their constitutionally intended role. Uh, what do we do though? Uh, we want to be as, we want to be a model office. So we investigate every case. We learn about our clients. We learn about their backgrounds, uh, the reasons they find themselves in court, uh, their physical, mental health, their education, uh, all those things that we might need to know in order to convince a judge or a prosecutor to um, be empathetic or show grace. Uh, we have to learn that stuff. And then we fight zealously in court. Um, and I think critically for the purposes of the county support, uh, we do everything we can uh, to make the system better. Um, now, we're not always going to be on the same page as everybody else because obviously our first our responsibility is to our clients' stated interests. But a lot of the times, their stated interests sync up quite well with um, the prosecutor's interests or the court's interests because we all want the same thing. We all want um, real community safety, and that's achieved through our clients um, having access to the services they need and being treated in a humane way that allows them to move on in their lives. Uh, so it, like I said, it's a, it's a holistic approach, and it isn't easy, but it's, uh, it's what our clients deserve, and it's what's required for the county to achieve its goals. Um, the, as I noted, the county's pledged to improve the system. Um, one way they've done that is to, uh, you, you all have done this with your, your commitment to essentially decriminalize mental illness and substance disorder. Um, it's a huge commitment that the county has made. Um, so much I know the money that goes into the sheriff, the uh, DHS, Commonwealth attorney, the courts, so much of that is pledged to this sort of thing, the, over, the overlap between the criminal legal system and behavioral health, mental illness, um, substance use disorder. Uh, I would suggest to you, and I don't know if it's ever been, how often it's phrased this way, um, but in some ways we are, I don't know, I wouldn't say the most important 
um, but the most essential uh, link in that chain, meaning that if we're not doing our jobs well, those things just don't happen. Um, so uh, before I get into more detail on that, um, some context for you. I think you know that Arlington um, has traditionally, and in, in recent years, um, had a disproportionate number of people with serious mental illness involved in its criminal legal system. Um, that remains the case, I think, my view is that people with serious mental illness remain over-policed in Arlington. Um, COVID made that situation much worse, as has the crisis in funding and staffing of our behavioral health infrastructure. So when that falls apart, then the only thing that police and courts can rely on, unfortunately, is jails and prisons. Um, the county still sends more competency cases to Western State Hospital. Like people who need to be restored to competency sends more people to Western State Hospital you know, as a result of criminal cases than any other jurisdiction, per capita at least. And I believe around half of the jail takes some type of psychotropic medication. Um, the county has taken many admirable steps to improve that situation. We now have a really good behavioral health docket. We have a tremendous bond diversion program of drug treatment court. We have, um, we're working, still working on appropriate mental health crisis response, but that's gotten better. Um, and lots of, of commitments to reentry planning. Uh, and in addition to the formal diversion initiatives, we also, uh, there's much more openness to informal diversion. And just, I think, a, there's more of a spirit of you know, evidence-informed, humane approach focused on um, rehabilitation. Um, and the judges and commerce attorneys are much more open to that at this juncture. Uh, but I, again, what I before I got into that, what I prefaced that with was um, that a lot of the burden, I, I think a, a huge amount of the burden, probably more than you think, falls on us to make sure those programs and, initi and initiatives actually work. Um, because without, this, without us doing our jobs well, there are no clients for those programs to serve. And we're the ones that facilitate that. And also, even if somebody else, you know, other people, or if we're not doing our jobs well, um, even if we're getting people into the programs, who knows if it's going to be the right people. And that's when there's limited resources, you need to maximize, uh, you need to maximize the efficacy of the program. And so many of these programs, uh, they depend on these risk needs uh, responsivity assessments, determining who really needs it. And a lot of this falls on us as well, to determine who legally, you know, who's going to benefit from this, who from their, from their standpoint of their, their background, their character, their, whatever it's going into their life at this point. Um, who are the people that really need to be in that program? And so uh, what I mean when I say that without us, people don't get in that program is because, uh, you know, like prosecutors can't speak with our clients. Um, so I know like the uh, Commerce Attorney's Office recently got a grant funded position for a social worker. They want to work on bond diversion, but they're unable, that social worker is unable to really do that in a direct way. If we had a social worker, we could certainly do that. We would benefit from something like that. Um, but we're the ones who have to have those conversations. We have the attorney-client privilege. They're, they trust us. They trust us more even than the mental health professionals in the jail because um, they know that the information they share with us is going to be privileged. We're not going to share it with anyone else and that we can be trusted, trusted with it. Um, so we're the ones that have to learn that, the, that information about them, build those bonds of trust, give them good counsel, and encourage them to make not just good choices for their criminal cases but for their lives. And we do view that as our responsibility, not just to win cases, but to make sure our clients have good life outcomes. Um, so, uh, and this, I, this burden actually has been made worse recently. I know I mentioned the, the crisis in behavioral health care. Um, 
So that's a, that affects local, the local jail. I know you know that it affects uh, Sequoia. I mean, they have that whole wing of the, of the Sequoia building that for a lot of the time just isn't staffed because they can't staff it. And, you know, we have a we have VHC that's going to expand, but it hasn't expanded yet. So, you know, we have in, in the jail, you see um, they have one bond diversion planner. She's amazing, uh, Maggie Gasser, but they could use five. Uh, so we have to be on our game massively. And... Um, and we have to do some of those things that aren't being done because other parts of the system you know, aren't, aren't staffed or maybe there aren't the services there for them. Um, a good example right now, and we do, by the way, take full advantage of the programs and the commitments you all have made. So a good example is Behavioral Health Docket. Really, we're really pleased with how it's been going. And almost the entire docket right now is made up of people who are our clients. So we're, we, are, we are getting them into the program and it's going really well. Um, I thought that it might be useful to sort of walk you through, and I, I did this with Mr. Schwartz, but I thought it might be good to just briefly walk you through a case example of how what this looks like in practice. And this is sort of a pastiche, so I'm not violating any client confidences, but this is realistic. This is something that happens not just on a monthly basis, but probably a daily, weekly, if not a daily basis. Um, so imagine uh, uh, somebody, a man in his uh, 60s uh, who has a lifelong history of schizophrenia. And it's been so bad, it's pretty difficult to medicate. But if he's medicated, doesn't get in a lot of trouble, um, maybe, doesn't make, maybe isn't able to be fully functional on his own. Um, but you know, it certainly helps. Uh, this person has a long criminal history, but none of it's violent. Um, mostly things like nuisance crimes, trespassing, things of that nature. The person is known, D known to DHS. So it's a person who receives services. But maybe every eight, 10 to 12 months or so, there's a slip up. Maybe misses his injectable medication, um, then becomes street homeless, and maybe starts acting out. And the way that might look in practice is the person maybe starts wandering into the street yelling at people, or sits on the sidewalk yelling at people. There's a, a, a problems with the, the, the social behavior and it alarms the community. Right. So in one of those episodes, this person um, uh, Say it's a Monday before Thanksgiving, we'll say, because this a similar case happened around then. He's arrested for trespassing because he goes to a, a local nail salon and starts banging on the door. And he won't leave when he's asked. So the police have to arrest him. There are no beds at VHC, so they have to take him to the jail. He gets booked on a trespassing warrant. And because of how he's presenting, the magistrate doesn't let him out. So the magistrate thinks, oh, I can't let this person back into the community. Um, here's what happens next. So he's arraigned by uh, the court. We are appointed. So this would be, if he's arrested Monday night, we're appointed on Tuesday morning. Um, in this case, say, we learn maybe by 10 in the morning, 11 in the morning, that we get that case. Because we've streamlined our pretrial advocacy, um, an assigned bond attorney knows to expect those cases around that time. And that person will then try to con well, tries to contact this individual using the jail phones. Uh, but he can't get through because the, person, the front desk deputy says that uh, he won't come to the phone. Like he's too uh, symptomatic, he's not going to come to the phone. Um, once we realize that, the bond attorney then contacts one of our mitigation staff and says, hey, I need you to go over and see him immediately because we need to find out what's going on. Um, luckily, our mitigation staff, who already does mental health rounds on a weekly basis, was planning on going to the jail anyway. So she goes over, she um, goes up to the unit, um, one of the crisis units, and speaks to the food slot, to the gentleman, and is able to quickly observe that he is acutely symptomatic, very paranoid and angry, does not seem medicated, and needs to be stabilized. Um, so the mitigation person tells the attorney that, and the attorney then 
reaches out immediately. Again, we're working on a very tight uh, time schedule because a bond motion would have to get in by about 3.30. Reaches out to the bond diversion program, asks for assistance with treatment and um, uh, treatment referral and housing placement. Also reaches out to the mental health staff at the jail. Um, through them, learns that the client actually had just recently missed their injectable medication, but then through that conversation, they, ha they have a further conversation with that gentleman and he agrees to take his meds again. Um, we, we, with the help of the bond diversion program, then secure a shelter placement. Bond diversion confirms the shelter placement. And with that work complete, we file a bond motion to be heard Wednesday morning. Uh, the judge seems satisfied with the work we've done, all of us together, collaboratively, and he's out in time for Thanksgiving. Um, you, know, you can keep following that case in some cases like this because bond diversion is viewed as sort of a precursor to the behavioral health docket. Somebody in that situation might then uh, have a referral to behavioral health docket where they, they're going to do uh, their evaluations, but we then also have to meet with the person, go over the ex expectation for the program, and then be there with them in court to help them get them into, uh, into the program. So I think you can probably see just through that, and that happens all the time. That is, that is a very typical case. Um, and it, unless we know what we're doing, unless we have those relationships, unless we understand the uh, treatment services available, it's just not gonna happen. So all these reasons, um, this is why our initial, well, our, our initial ask was different. It's for true pay parity with the Commonwealth, and we're still far behind in that regard. And I know you've heard the pitch, you understand the rationale. We fully understand there's, it's a tight budget year, and appreciate at least that uh, funding's not being cut at all. So we very much thank you for that. However, I do think that there's solid grounds to, to fund another position for us, because uh, with that, these systems can work even better. Um, and so we modified our ask. I think we're still expecting um, some raise from the governor, and there's going to be a state employee raise, which will naturally affect our, the supplement amount from the county as well. But really, in order to provide excellent quality services as the, the county wishes, um, an, another position would be extraordinarily helpful. I would note that other model public defender's offices, like the Public Defender Service in uh, D.C., they do this. So um, in, at the Public Defender Service of D.C., I, I believe it's one investigator to every two, uh, two attorneys. And I think it's close to that with social workers. You know, we are, we're so in such bad shape, we have two paralegals and one mitigation investigator. We use both paralegals, including the county-funded paralegal, as mitigation specialists. So we, we pledge as much staff as we can. We even have interns um, who work on that. Um, so that's most of what I wanted uh, to go through. Uh, I would uh, just very quickly, um, before I ask you if you ha have any questions, um, I think you'd be pleased to know some of the ways in which the, the supplement is helping so much for us. Um, we've had a ton of success recruiting. Um, it is uh, incredible, the applicant pools we get for attorneys and other positions. Uh, attorneys really are choosing us over other really good offices. Um, and I, I know you'd like to think it's just because amazing office leadership or something, but it's, it's, it's finances. You know, people, it's incredible. The cost of living is high around here. And, um, you know, they want to go somewhere that they're going to be able to do this for a career if they can. So we're, we're, getting, we're getting great applicants. And also, we're getting diverse applicants. So there, not long ago, actually two years ago, of all the Northern Virginia public defender's offices, there was only one black public defender. That's it. And that's embarrassing. And um, so the Engine Defense Commission made a real commitment to um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and we did as an office. So that's been, we've been very intentional about hiring, hiring black public defenders. We think lived experience is merit, and it allows our attorneys to have empathy and also build bonds of trust more quickly with their clients. And it, that is proving to be absolutely true. And we find the same with the support staff and the ad admins. I believe more than half of our support staff and admins are people of color. 
Um, and lastly, with respect to the, the way that the, the supplement is helping, we've had very little staff attrition compared to a lot of law offices. Um, it's actually been kind of a crisis with an indigent defense, and you find offices throughout the state right now that are, I don't know, maybe even two-thirds, sometimes even half. Fredericksburg was almost like half at half staff, uh, the public defender's office. We've only had one. In, F, in fiscal year 2022, we only had one departure, and then in this current fiscal year, we've had none. So there's been no turnover. Like, we've just got a solid group of advocates that really like each other and doing great work with each other. And the supplement is a huge reason why I fully would, I would fully expect, you know, if we had a lower supplement or none at all, that folks would be leaving for other offices, they'd be leaving for private practice. So it's a huge assist. Um, but that's mostly what I wanted to cover. If you have any questions, I'd be happy to answer them. Appreciate it, Mr. Haywood. Uh, Ms. Garvey. Yeah, thank Mr. you. DeFranti. It's great to hear how well your office is doing in these times. That's, that's, that's really good. Um, just a question. I had the impression you're asking for an additional county-funded position. It sounds like what you're asking for is a social worker, not, not, not an attorney, but a, someone who's sort of a social worker. Is that what you're asking for? Uh, we would be happy with anyone, honestly, but yes. I mean, <laughs> okay. so, so um, you know, I think, to be totally frank, uh, we, we could get uh, more qualified staff that are paid at the attorney level. Like we're locked in with the Indigent Defense Commission, paying by position. We can't, you know, modify what they're paid. And unfortunately, pay for mitigation specialists is still low. It tracks how low pay is for social workers elsewhere. But I think that's more of a general problem nationwide. Social workers aren't paid enough. Um, but that, you know, that's our ask. But if the county were open to funding a social work position, we would be all for it also. All right, thank you. I'm not sure we could find a social worker because that is a problem, but thank you. Mm -hmm. yeah. Indeed. Mr. DeFerranti. Um, thank you, Mr. Chair. Just sort of following up and keeping in mind, we were maybe in a different position on this budget than we were three years ago, three months ago, excuse me. But um, for me, the center of my thinking as to a hope for any FTE in the whole budget is going to be this position you mentioned and understanding better the mental health docket. Those are the two. Um, and that does not mean by, uh, that I have a likelihood of getting any of the two, but, I, but that is the center. And so um, it's helpful to hear your sort of theory of the case. And I'm sure that there is a theory of the, with respect to the mental health docket as well, and so I just want to—I'll follow up offline, and mindful of time. But that is your description of how it comes is is going to be important, and then I just want to understand the mental health docket as well. Thank you, Mr. Karen Tonis. Uh, very short. I, I had the opportunity to uh, talk with you, so I, I understand the ask and, and the center on um, mental health and the uh, uh, bond diversion uh, issues that. You raised uh, because we have a significant increase in demand there. I have just one question for my clarification. So, in, in the critical measures, the number of seriously mentally uh, uh, seriously mentally ill clients identified, the estimate is about 505, and the number of uh, seriously mentally ill clients incarcerated is about a thousand. So do these things correlate, or is just these are two independent measures? There are, it's a, I would say that's probably a data problem. Um, we rely on the jail um, to provide us stats, and then we essentially calculate based on the, uh, estimate based on the total number of SMI clients at the jail, who, how many we would have served. It's super difficult um, to do that with our, our database. 
Um, that's the methodology we've used in recent years. There was a, when we changed. Also, we indicated that in the, in the um, budget, our budget narrative. Yeah. Thank you. I, I just see there is a steady, uh, you know, increase. Yeah. Not the spectacular one in this case, but yeah. a steady, steady increase. Thank you. Thank you. And Ms. Haywood, we really appreciate your time and, and staying um, to and through the bitter end. Um, so this, this will conclude our work session for today. We really uh, very much appreciate all the constitutional offices and 10 in all, I believe, in a little bit over three and a half hours. We will be back for our next work session a week from today. I believe that's the Department of Environmental Services. We are adjourned. Thanks. Thanks, Brad.